Coming up on this episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, we continue our look at the top 10 movies from the decade known as the 1970s. Joining me on this episode, my guest Bo Ransdell and myself will look at 1971, going through 10 of the top movies from that year and selecting two to go through to the final round table. But before we get to that, ladies and gentlemen, it's year four, and you know what that means? This time, it's war. Warning, the podcast under the stairs is not safe for work. We'll feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners may find offensive. Brought to you in conjunction with Legion Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is episode 114. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. Episode 114 sees a continuation of our Teapots Summer Top 10. This year we're looking at the top 10 horror movies from the 1970s but we'll put our own little special spin on it. If you listened to last week's episode you'll know that this is a top 10 list unlike any which has been recorded in podcast history. I have stacked a new set of rules on this top 10 creation which makes things very difficult and will mean that the list that comes through at the end will be fairly represented of all the years within that decade but might mean some of the classics fall by the wayside. Yes, I'm talking about the Noah's Ark rules. Each year in horror, we will dedicate one show to counting down the top 10 movies from that year, but only two movies can go forward. And at the end, we will have a list of 20 movies, two representing every single year within that decade, which will score to create the top 10 list. You guys, the listeners, will have involvement right at the very end where you can create your own scoring for that top 10 list and we'll create the definitive list on a roundtable episode featuring myself and my five guests that are featuring on these podcasts. Last week I was joined by Ricky Morgan. We looked at 1970 and carried forward Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Count Yorga Vampire. This week we look at 1971 and joining me after the break is none other than Bo Ranstall and I can tell you right now this show is going to be a doozy but I don't have much to say at the start of this episode because this one is going to run long. Any show with myself and Bo is going to it's going to go over the two hour mark anyway so to keep this succinct at the start so you can enjoy a lot of talking about 1971 in movies I'm going to jump out just now so you're going to hear promos for shows that I love. You're going to hear the introduction music for the tea Puts top 10 1970s horror 2017 and when I return I'll be joined with my guest right after this 
Hello, I'm Gore Blimey and I'm your host on the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Each month I'll look at one director and talk about three of their horror movies. Kicking things off in episode one with Lamberto Bava, the man who brought us demons. Now, the horror films might not always be scary or even good, but well, if that happens, what movie and pizza night isn't all the better for a bit of extra cheese? Come and check out the show at gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com or find it on iTunes and Stitcher. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick... <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. There's no more room in hell. The dead will walk here. You know the thing about a shaggy skin? Lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eye. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Right, it's time to get serious. That's right. Uh, introduction is gone. You know what the format of this show is now. You've already listened to last week's episode, hopefully, where myself and Ricky Morgan battled down to two movies carrying forward from 1970. We are now moving on to 1971. And every year after this, it's going to get progressively more difficult because the 1970s is a decade, I've said it many times before, is a decade that very much like a fine wine, just get it gets better the longer you keep it. And the longer these years go on, um, the more exciting voices and the more exciting directions horror cinema takes. But 71 is no slouch. And uh, I randomly selected all the years because one man put me on the spot with that he as soon as I pitched this idea said oh yes I'm in oh and by the way I want 1973 and I was like that's not how that works um 
and then it got more complicated and by the luck of the draw I'm pretty sure he paid someone at Google and their uh, randomizer he did land with 1973 but he also landed with 1971 so let me introduce my guest who's going to be trawling through the the top 10 movies of this year that we picked um he is my my best friend on Duncan and Bo come correct because he's the only guy there uh, with me <laughs> I could have said hey. myself I, I could have said myself could have said myself but I'm Scottish and I hate other Scots so you've locked in there sir um, he is yeah he's, he's my co-host over at Duncan and Bo come correct or as, as we're currently known Duncan and Bo go to Twin Peaks he is the showrunner behind Legion Podcast Network he is one of the, the great minds behind Schadenfreude and Gaming uh, which is just a that's a cruel joke for any Scot to say um, <laughs> that's why we picked it Dick. specifically for that Dick. Um, and he's a man behind the Hero Hero Go Show the podcast that exclusively looks at Asian horror cinema he is the fantastic Mr. Bo Ransdell how you doing Bo? I'm doing great thanks sir how are you? <laughs> I am um, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking now that all movies should be shot in the 1970s. I don't know why. Um, it's because that's my diet at the moment. My diet is a is a is a, a a hearty helping on the plate of 1970s horror cinema with a side portion of salad. And it's not a very nice salad, so I'm sticking it in the main course. Sticking it in the main course. Well, how about yourself? Oh man, living in that same Technicolor world. Um, <laughs> as, as we were discussing off the air um because uh you know we've been doing the twin peak stuff and uh a uh, number of other <laughs> things have been going on so uh when it came time to record uh this particular program um i felt behind i had not adequately prepared so uh i have seen most of the films we are talking about tonight in the past 36 hours <laughs> And as I told you before, it changed my life, Duncan. <laughs> we all became Richard Glenn Smith for a wee while there and started doing movie thons. Well, all right, and it's so appropriate that you mentioned him because this is how my life changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I That was the highest concentration of Gialli that I have been confronted with. <laughs> <laughs> in years years maybe ever i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing it i i think it was absolutely a good thing because i've been listening to uh hello this is the doom show a bunch hmm. uh it's a great show everyone should listen but you know that deals very heavily with italian cinema and GLA in particular yes and uh so i love listening to those shows even for the films that i i haven't necessarily seen so i've i've Felt like I've been getting a bit of a, a, a master's degree in Gialli without a, any practical application, <laughs> and then and then at, like over this past you know uh, manic thirty six hours of watching movies, uh, it was like oh I'm really coming around to Giallo cinema mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I never had before. I'm starting to really like it. Nice. And, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, this is a proud moment for me because I've been trying to entice you that way now for almost the entirety of our our kind of podcast relationship <laughs> yeah i i know and had there been a killer bear in a jolly <laughs> i would have i would have been quicker to come around 
that's really the big disconnect. Well, well, there is there is a there is a, a monkey with a, sl- a switchblade in Phenomena, um, and Phenomena is one of my favorites <laughs> for the monkey. <laughs> and, and, and there's also a lot of bugs. There is a lot so, of bugs. There is a lot. So of I like all that stuff. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> But it was it was only uh, just recently uh, in watching these films that I was like, man, they're uh, like seeing a consistency, uh, a consists. All right, Duncan, how did you turn me Scottish? Uh, a consist. Oh, screw it. Um, there is a through line through these films. Consistent. Consistency. consistency. Yeah, there it. we there go. go. Man, I want to point us out. Here, one of us here is an author. <laughs> Yeah, I want to point out it is nine o'clock in the morning. Also, and is... we're not fully through. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but there's also like seeing the unique voices within this kind of uh, common uh, consistency. Yeah, uh, within the films, it was really seeing it in a concentrated form like that gave me a much greater appreciation of it, and I'm uh, and I'm ready to watch the editor. Uh, oh, finally! That's good. That's good. I, yeah. I'm quite chuffed about because this one's this is quite interesting because as as the people out there will will find pretty quickly, um, there there is something quite interesting that actually appeared as doing these top ten lists. Um, the the format was very simple. What I did was I said to my guests originally I was going to do a top five and they were going to do a top five and we're going to bring them together and whenever there was like crossover. Uh, so, for example, if both of us picked the same movie, I would pick another movie to save you going away. Um, and I thought, that's no, that's not going to work. Because chances are, it's just going to be easier for me to say, pick five movies, Bo. And you come back with your five movies, and I, I would say, right, those ones are now no longer able to be picked by me, and I'll just pick five movies. Um, and I found that a lot easier in that respect, because it made me a bit more thorough in my investigations as to what came out in that year. And interestingly enough... Um, you will probably find specifically between the years 1970 and about 1975, which is the the kind of the peak of of Jali cinema in Italy. You're going to see quite a few Jali pop up on these these top ten lists, and I would like to say most of them were picked by me. But in the case of this list here, one of them was picked by you um, straight yeah, away, that, and it's one of the more popular titles. You know, it, but I, I'll tell you. I don't think it's the be- the best Giallo film on the list. I would agree with that. And I also don't think it's necessarily fully a Jally movie either. I think um, when, when you watch it, um, it, 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 to me, charts almost a rebellion of the director against the genre that he started, um, which gives away a lot. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about specifically the first five minutes of that where the director makes a statement of right, well, this yep. isn't you know this is not the movie you expected to be from the director sure. you want, and it, I think that's really quite interesting. But there is there there are two here after that, um, which we will discuss. One of which is from the kind of the, the new pretender to the throne, uh, Dario Argento. But the other one is the directorial debut of a lesser known director, Aldo Lado, um, and yeah, yeah, I think. I don't know, like, watching it, I just thought, this is completely underrated. Um, and it's, it's the first time I've seen it in many, many years. And I recently got a Blu-ray of it. And uh, watching it back, I, I was kind of just captivated about um, the story just in general, which feels completely out of sync. And it, because Jallo at that time was such a... 
it was just finding its feet. It had been around for a while, but Argento had kind of made it popular. Um, you get these directors really trying different things with it, kind of like slasher movies and like the kind of very early eighties. You get some people that are like, "Well, this is how you make a slasher," but you get all these weird oddities that come out in like eighty one, eighty two, which. Our director's kind of saying, right, well, we understand that's what you need in principle, but what happens if I start adding this element? And what happens if I take it in this direction? And they share a very common, a very common life cycle, actually. Both of them burned out in about about the same period of time. They were milked to death by, um, by directors. But the list that we're going to discuss, though, has everything. It has everything you could want. It has Supernatural, it has, there's a Hammer title here, there's an Amicus title here, uh, there is Sacrilegious movies which are still, and and they're full content banned. Um, there's an Animal movie, uh, the, arguably the one that kicked off that whole kind of nature run amok. Um, so I think it's one of the earlier titles that, that did that, certainly. But we have so much to talk about and the actors yeah. are of the highest quality. We have Vincent Price, we have Christopher Lee, we have Peter Cushion, we have Vanessa Redgrave, we have Oliver Reed. We have huge names in the genre appearing in this one. And this is this is what makes the 70s an exciting decade. And before we go on to the full list of the movies, I'm right in saying, I, I think we've discussed this before, this is your favourite decade for horror cinema. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think for sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be said for the 80s. Don't yes. get me wrong. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I because of the reasons you were talking about in the intro, uh, which is that it begins in this almost innocent thing. Like when we talk about a movie like Twins of Evil, yeah, uh, there is almost a, a like a, a charming innocence to that film, as salacious as it may seem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so a lot of the films are like that. Even even something like. You know, a couple of other other movies on the list. I won't spoil it just yet. Um, but it evolves into something truly nasty. Yeah. And it, and it kind of kicks off, I think, this year. Uh, there There is one film that we're going to be talking about <laughs> that is as nasty as you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, you might call it <laughs> Mr. Russell if you're nasty. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> and it's one of those movies that when you see it you're like oh shit has changed yeah like the no, no, no movie will ever be the same after this one yeah and um so yeah it, it's a, a tremendous decade and it also has the rise of the you know the big popcorn blockbuster and uh and, and also like when you go back to the roots of horror yeah you can go back to or cinematic horror, I mean, you can go back to the 30s and Universal and stuff like that. But in terms of modern horror, what horror films look like today, it all started in the 70s. Yeah. It was all Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, uh, Jaws, um, even Body Snatchers. I mean, there was uh, all these movies that just and, and you know, Exorcist shit. We're going to talk about that later mm-hmm. um, that, you know, just landed with such an impact that generations of filmmakers were traumatized by them and went on to, to, to emulate them. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's just, it, it's the most substantive decade because it's so diverse. Like my big complaint with eighties horror movies is that most of them feel of that time in yeah. a way. 
Uh, whereas the, a lot of the 70s films um, kind of drift into this timelessness. And uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. I love I love talking about these movies and some of the ones on my list on the list today are among my very favorites uh, ever. There's uh, like a couple of these movies are just like some of the best movies I ever saw. So uh, yeah, I love it. It's, it is exciting, and like like we like myself and Ricky were talking about last week on the previous episode. Um, like in the early 70s we're still getting that the change of the old guard into the new guard so we're still getting the hammer horror movies although they're kind of adapting with the times um, slightly uh, they're moving to an extent yeah yeah they're moving away from your kind of cookie cutter vampire movies uh, um, and moving more towards kind of Satan and more of that evil stuff that was starting to span out of the, the very late 60s and into the Certainly into the seventies, but we've got, you know Amicus have, are doing what Amicus do in the, in this uh, this decade as well. But we're getting the exciting new kind of oh, I say new genre, even though it'd been around for a good five six years by this point of of the Jallo and just other things, just like directors experimenting with different ideas of what terror is, um, and I kind of love that. Which brings us to the list, the list of ten movies that we'll be discussing in this first half of the podcast um, is uh, Bay of Blood by the maestro Mario Bava. We'll be doing uh, the uh, abominable. I was going to say abominable, uh, but that's when the he's abdominal. Been, yeah, Doctor Five. That's when he's been doing his setups. Um, he's just got like a ripped six pack. Vincent Price walking around with rock hard abs. So I like to think of them when I'm alone at night. Uh, <laughs> rock hard abs and. <laughs> going through the neck thing of like give me another 20 <laughs> oh my god I'm just thinking Full Metal Jacket would have been a completely different movie if Vincent Price was uh. the drill master such. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. listen to me maggot <laughs> Uh, so we've got the uh, uh, Abominable Doctor Fibes by uh, Robert Fust or Fust or Fust which makes me say sound like I said that backwards uh, The Devils by the iconic Ken Russell Willard by Mr. Daniel Russell if you're nasty, <laughs> nasty. Uh, Willard by uh, Daniel Mann We have Daughters of Darkness by Harry Kamel uh, the short glass of the sorry the short glass <laughs> has me thinking of last night short glass the short doll Ooh. of the glass night uh, short night of the glass doll um, let's scare Jessica to death by John D Hancock we have the house that dripped blood by Peter Duffel um, we have twins of evil by John Ho 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 English name oh. Oh. Uh, and Cat and Nine Tales <laughs> by director Dario Argento so Noble at this stage here we are seeing the return of Bava who made two appearances in the previous episode and um, Dario Argento for his second appearance now Bo what I did in the previous episode now we obviously have our list of 10 but I like to mix it up so we're not just like talking about all the great ones first and then maybe the ones that are slightly less great from the great ones afterwards. So the way we're going to do this is basically we'll shout out a title and then we will we'll, we'll talk about the title. We'll talk about interesting like casting choices, uh, maybe a little bit about the director if we want, if there's anything notable we need to say about it. Um, I have a brief synopsis as uh, picked up from the IMDb's but 
we're going to talk more about the movie itself, but we're not going to go into too much detail. We're going to try and limit this to no more than 10 minutes speaking about any of these movies. Um, you and I are known for our brevity, Duncan. We, so. we are known for short episodes. That is, anyone that has listened to us speak three and a half hours on a 45-minute TV show episode, know that we are concise, Bo. Yes. Concise. If nothing else, <laughs> concise and professional. Right, so let, let's kick us off with one that you picked. Um, and like I, I kind of joked earlier on, this is one that you could almost see uh, its success being the kind of precursor to a hell of a lot of nature run up movies, and that's Willard. Um, director Daniel Mann, starring Ernest Borgain, uh, Bruce Davison, and Sandra Locke. Synopsis is listed on the. I love this. Um, is listed on IMDb is just a socially a social misfit uses his only friends, his pet rats, to exact revenge on his tormentors. Um, yeah. Well, Socrates was the best friend he ever had. He says it right there in the movie. He, he actually says that. In the movie, and Ben is a wee dick, or is that what he'd be known in Scotland? Yeah, Ben is a, a jerk. Um, <laughs> like Ben's got it good and just won't leave it alone. Yeah, and, and Ben, I'm almost positive, responsible, responsible ultimately for the death of Socrates, because <laughs> that's the one that wouldn't shut the fuck up. Yeah, and I would also say it's almost as if like Ben was the diva of the two and demanded his own spin-off movie. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I want ben Tom is Belling, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So Willard is a movie I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I first of all, you're right. Killer Rats, how can you go wrong? Yeah. That, that's a recipe for wonderful. <laughs> then you have Bruce <laughs> Davison, who's fantastic yeah. as Willard. Um, like be, because he's the protagonist and ultimately murders people, <laughs> you have to be on board with this character. And at no point does Bruce Davison play Willard as being a sinister character. No, um, he's he's this guy that's just been get, getting kicked in the balls by life so long that rats seem like a good companion. And you know the smell of that cellar had to be terrible, but Willard put up with it because he needed someone to love him. Um, He's really an American hero. Let's let's be honest. He, I mean, in a lot of ways, he is. It like Willard is a dude uh, who is on the like the universe kicks him in the balls all the way through this movie up oh, yeah. to and including the finale, mm-hmm. um, where. It's like, man, the, the one time he had a chance to get ahead, to get out from under his mother, who's dead, thank Christ, and from his boss and all that stuff. And th- sure enough, Diva Ben has to fuck it up. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's a fantastic movie. Sandra Locke is, is actually, um, I, don't, I don't think she's a great actress, but I think she's really nice in this role as, as kind of the, the one other person that, uh, Willard can connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just think it's a fantastic movie. I mean, uh, y- yeah, rats are attacking people, and that that's near and dear to my heart. But ultimately, it's this kind of tragic story about a guy who just gets the shaft from frame one to, till the final frame. <laughs> You're damn right. Hey, yeah. Who is man? Willard. Um. <laughs> Shut your mouth. I'm just talking about Ben. Can I give you a bit of trivia here? Please do. 
the this more the merrier. The first time I'd ever seen this movie. No kidding. What? Well, I, yeah, I have seen the remake. I'd seen the 2003 Crispin which is, Glover out, which is actually a surprisingly good remake. Not a bad movie, but I, I think it. He plays it as if he is on board with the rats from Jump. Yeah, I think you know. Unfortunately, that's that 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 may be um, the downside of looking like Crispin Glover. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just just by proxy, you're like, oh, he's up to something. Like anything, I'm making like, sandwiches. <laughs> so like that was my only like I'd seen Ben. Funnily enough, uh, Ben was one that I had seen before. I didn't realize that I'd seen Ben years ago, um, possibly on TV. I think. And yeah. I'd it, never it's equate- fun. It's it's nowhere near as good as Will. No. But-, but I never equated it as being like a sequel to a movie or like a spin-off to a movie. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just I just took it as a standalone movie. So when I'd seen Willard um, back in the day, it must have been about when it came out, maybe two thousand and four, two thousand and five ish. I'd always thought, well, that they've just clearly, clearly ripping off Ben. Um, oh, so you thought they like retconned? Yeah, yeah, but I'd, like, but obviously during my time period and between then and recording this show um, over the years, I was very much aware that Willard was a remake. That actually come across it as part of my top ten best and worst horror remake series that I did a few years ago. As you know, Willard was one of the ones that was put up in the the better category. So it was always I will get around to it one day. I liked Willard from two thousand and three. There's a good chance I'm going to like the original seventies version. And I sat there and watched it and fucking loved it. Absolutely adored this movie. Um, and it was mostly because I think you've hit the nail on the head. Is Bruce Davison's portrayal of that character is is phenomenal. There's a weird kind of I know it's of the time, but there's this kind of weird kind of vibe of almost like Harold and Maud. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which kind of fact, there's a whimsical, like one of, one of the, the weirder bits of the trivia that I found out while, while doing a bit of investigation on the IMDb uh, was that Bing Crosby's production company is behind this one. And there is a kind of Bing Crosby-ness about the front end of this movie. Like really just kind of whimsical, kind of happy, kind of bad that things are happening. That going to have some rats kill for him. <laughs> boo, 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 boo. <laughs> it just has this has this vibe about it which is really just like at, about halfway through watching this movie I was like so when are we going to get sinister you know when are things going to get sinister I mean on, on some level the, the, the Willard character I think is almost a proto version of a character like Dexter and later day of this guy who you ultimately root for throughout the movie even though he's responsible for some reprehensible things um, like when he basically tells the rats to you know cut him up um, tear it up yeah t- t- like t- tear up um, Ernest Borgen's character yeah. And they all just get like there's a guy clearly just throwing rats in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's real silly but kind of charming to me. It's like, oh, what did you, oh, I'm so glad that you got your big break in the film industry. Yeah, Diana, I'm working on this movie movie called Willard. All right, well, we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks to see how the filming went. Right, not a problem. A couple of weeks later. So, so what did you do? Were you were you in the sound booth? Did you did you work on set with the makeup or anything like that? No, no. The list will talk about. No, tell me what you did. <clears throat> I was a head rat thrower. Uh, what was what was that? Sorry, uh, head head rat throw. What does what does that mean? Diana means I threw rats. <laughs> that was wait, my wait, job, wait. right? Are you in the rat tossers union? Are you a scab? Are you a rat scab? <laughs> a rat scab. Speaking of rats, uh, the original production title for this movie is so much better than Willard. It was called The Ratman's Notebook. <laughs> That's pretty good. Which I'm like, I want to see that movie. Um, yeah. 
And the reason I say, like, and like from doing a bit of... It turns out, like, in the 1950s and 60s, which we were well aware of, we had a lot of the kind of sci-fi movies, a lot of those, like, giant bug movies and, and all the rest. But Willard is, like, one of the first kind of this-is-a-regular-animal-look-what-regular-animals-can-do sort of movies. Um, and no one expected this movie to do nearly as well as it did. In fact, most of the people involved with the movie thought it was just going to be like, oh, I'll be out for a couple of weekends, it's going to do a bit of business, but nothing to write home about. And this movie did really, really, really well. Like, it brought in a lot of money, and as a result of that, a lot of studios after this were like, really? We can yeah. wait a second? And this is like, the 70s becomes the decade for, and I do not need to tell you this, and we have a show now exclusively on Legion Podcast Network called The Food Chain, where the vast bulk of the movies that will be discussed on said podcast all come from this decade uh, for that very reason. Um, the, the kind of nature, animals gone amok movies are really, this is almost like Grim Zero. There had been a few, but none with the success of Willard, and Willard dreamlit a lot of projects, which I think is quite fascinating. And it's almost, had the movie just been mediocre, it's almost worth worth putting it on the list for that reason alone, because it's an important movie. But when you add to it, there is, there's some really good writing in here. There's an excellent central performance, and um, I would say the antagonist of the the, the movie, is played by Ernest Borgain, um, is... He's great. He's so wonderfully mustachioed, twisted villain in this movie. Um, he's, Elsa he's... Lanchester, uh, Bride yep. of Frankenstein her, herself, mm-hmm. uh, as his mom. Yes, um, some just great performances. Um, yeah. And there's there's a we- like there's a, a quirky weirdness of the like the, all the elder relatives that come round the friends of the family that come round to, to like, just like watching it I was like this is so over it's like that quirky over time sort of like see when you see the uh, the, the kind of satanist party and um, Rosemary's Baby and everyone's just dressed a little bit weird like even by 60s standards everyone's just a little bit weird um, it's kind of like that as well they're all very eccentric and it just adds to the charm of the movie. I, I, well, I thoroughly loved this movie. I, I really was surprised by how much I dug it when I watched it. Well, there's a movie here without the rats. Like, yes. if you took that out, there's still an interesting character study in the movie Willard. And then you throw in killer rats and, you know... <laughs> mm, it just it makes you happy. It, no, it, it, it's... <laughs> It's a wonderful movie, and and I'm I'm glad you finally saw it and enjoyed it as much as uh, as you did because everybody should see it. if you've never seen the original Willard. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's it's uh, just a really I can see why. Um, I think recently Scream Factory in the states put that and Ben out on Blu-ray, and there was a lot of excitement on on the Facebook group page for the podcast under the stairs. I was like, is it that good a movie? <laughs> Is this one that we really need? <laughs> yeah, on Blu-ray, sure. And then watching it, so that yeah, I would I would own this movie in a second. I, w- I would have this. I would happily have this as part of the collection. So yeah, Willard. So that was that was one that you picked. Let's jump to one I picked, Bo. Right. So um, let well, let's go with this one then. Um, let's scare Jessica to death, Bo. It sounds like a fun game. I like scaring people to death. Don't know if I mean, if you can, sure. If, if you can. Um, at the most, if they just get a little bit of wee that comes out, then I'm quite happy with that as well. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's not to death, but if you can scare someone to pee. <laughs> which, by the way, Let's Scare Jessica to Pee, much different film. Also <laughs> quite good. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there is a there is a segment in the middle of it though that gets those people that are into golden showers erect as fuck. Sure. <laughs> we'll just put that in there. Erect as fuck. That's the description of the turgidity of the person's penis. Um, as fuck. Erect as fuck. Uh, so this one um, <laughs> is the is the feature debut of John D. Hancock. Um, interestingly enough, this guy almost. In fact, I think he was originally selected to do Jaws 2, purely based on the fact that there were some water sequences in this movie, and then he was fired. So, so. yeah, well, <laughs> as you do, <laughs> he probably was like, "So we're just remaking Jaws," <laughs> and they were like, "You don't like it? Get out of here! <laughs> Get out of here! <laughs> Get out of here, John Hancock!" <laughs> For some reason, the mob were involved with the making of Jaws 2. Here we go, information you it's did really not know. really the only thing that explains it. Broken here on this podcast. The mob were bringing Jaws 2. Get out of here! Well, yeah, hey, yeah, how that. do you want to end this movie? I don't know. How about a big power cable or something, Frankie? <laughs> Yo, Stevie, can we get a power cable? Power cable. Um, yeah, my cousin can get them from the docks. We got this covered. Anyway, all right, sorry. <laughs> So this one uh, stars uh, Zora Lampert, uh, Barton Heyman, Kevin O'Connor, Gretchen Corbett, um, and the synopsis is listed on IMDb for this one. A recently institutionalised woman has a bizarre experience after moving into a supposedly haunted country farmhouse and fears she may be losing her sanity once again. Um, So I put this one on the list because you'd already picked five movies that I would have easily picked uh, so I was like well let's go to this one because it had been several years since I saw it and I, my longest memory of seeing this movie was that whilst the content of it wasn't necessarily the most original or, or the greatest I just remember feeling that the movie just had this overwhelming kind of weight of atmosphere and kind of presence throughout like from start to finish it's just there was that it was a kind of weightiness about the movie and it was all done with the way it was shot and the fact that we have these these fog scenes rolling in across the lake um and i, I actually think the central performance uh, by zora lampert uh, of jessica who is losing her mind as this movie goes on um was super strong and going back to watch it my opinion hasn't really changed um i still think the movie feels overtly long um, there's a bit in the middle that lags a little bit but for the most part the cinematography is really 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 good in this movie um, and it does carry this kind of almost kind of dreamlike whimsy that carries through mostly, most of the shots um, and because we're putting this, the position of Jessica throughout this movie who is mentally unstable at the start um, and we could see mentally broken at the end of the movie we're left at the end not really knowing if anything we've seen has actually been accurate because she in herself is an unreliable witness. Um, I think the scoring in the movie is excellent. Um, I, I love the fact that they don't work the way to explain anything in the movie because those sort of things... It's the great thing about the 70s. They were just like, deal with it. Um, you know, this is you know this is how we end this movie. Uh, I know that we didn't explain it to you, but we're, we are comfortable that you grown-ups watching it will go home and you'll discuss it and you'll have your own conclusions. Unlike today's movies, which are like, let's give you a flashback to three seconds before the flashback, uh, just in case you missed that reveal of that obvious killer. Um, so yeah, famously this is one of Stephen King's favourite horror movies. What did you think? You'd seen this one before, I would dare say, Bo. You've been around yeah. for a while. 
it had been a very long time. Uh, but, you know, I, I saw this. God, but last time I saw this movie was probably twenty years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I, I think everything you say is right. I, I I think I enjoyed this more than I remembered the movie because I remember not caring for it all that much. Uh, I think it was interesting, but that was kind of it. And going back to it now as as an older man, Duncan, more sophisticated in my tastes. Um, <laughs> I, I just appreciated it uh, and what it was doing uh, a lot more. I, I don't think it's a perfect movie by any stretch. I think yeah. there's some sack to the middle. I don't think we need the musical number. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> and we all know that Bo likes a musical number. What? Mm. Anyone that's listening to Do Duncan I? and Bo go to Twin Peaks will know that Bo is a fan of just that guy bringing out his guitar and just singing. Yeah, it's probably my favorite thing ever. <laughs> and especially when it's like, hey, I found a cello. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> All right. Just the actor knows how to play a cello, I guess. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, but it's, 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 it's like they're doing School of Rock. He's like, I thought you said guitar. It says guitar on your resume. Well, listen, you take it, you pick it up and put it on your side and cello, you're playing a guitar, bro. Right. Shallow indeed, Duncan. <laughs> um, but all right. So, but the movie itself, even though I, I think it's set in Connecticut, I uh, believe so. Yeah, it feels like a Southern Gothic story, mm-hmm. and and it the atmosphere goes a long way. Um, the, you know, we're going to talk about this again on the list, but it's playing with the vampire mythology a little yep. bit. There's yep. certainly, you know, it. it Every everybody knows this, Duncan. Everybody knows <laughs> that uh, "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" has shades of Carmilla mm-hmm. in it, which is a very old story um, uh, uh, about a female vampire, and it influenced the Hammer films, and also found its way into this. And um, but it, it's a totally different take on it, and it's really interesting. It, it's you know, when I got to the end of Let's Scare Jessica to Death, first of all, I kept expecting Jason to come out of the water. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, it does point? It does have that feel. It really, really does have that feel at times. And you're like, that's had to have influenced the shot or two. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. And, uh, but it, yeah, I thought it was, it, it, it's a good movie. I think when we're talking about the best of this year, I don't think it hangs. No, I think the, I think we both said it. There is there is considerable lag, and it's not even just like, all oh, right, well, you know, five minutes and then something. There is there's a section of about twenty five minutes in the middle of this movie, of you could probably pick up your phone, maybe start texting some folk, make yourself a sandwich, have a cup of tea, and you're not missing anything at all. It's not as if things aren't happening, but the dread is continuing to build up. It just kind of stagnates for a while. Um, and it's a shame because it's bookended by what I think is a very good opening and a, a, and an excellent close to the movie as well. And that, that build up to the, the ultimate reveal of, well, is this person actually a vampire or not? Or is this all in the head of this woman who is, you know, she's scarred uh, mentally. <laughs> Um, and are we just following a, a series of her delusions as she mentally kind of maps out a, a kind of plausible theory as to why this woman that they have come across resembles someone from many, many years ago in a picture? Um, and th- the, like I say, the movie doesn't 
it doesn't explain it. It gives you an ending, but that ending in itself is ambiguous to say the least because it's it's positioned um, in the mindset of someone who we know uh, experiences experiences delusions, uh, which which I think is I, I think I think that idea is great. But when we're talking about when, when we go into the second half and we are shortlisting them down, it's not one that's going to make like a top five, for example. It's purely yeah. because. There are other movies that have a consistency throughout, which is really well done. And this one, unfortunately, has some really interesting moments, but the overall package doesn't make it a fully satisfying movie. I I, I totally agree. I, I think it's worth noting that this movie maybe does voiceover, um, or you know, like you're hearing the in, internal monologue of the Jessica character, mm-hmm. as well as the voices she's hearing. Yes, and and it's one of the more interesting looks at someone having a mental breakdown. Like it almost gets to repulsion level in terms of portraying that. Yeah, it's yeah. not nearly as good as repulsion. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but in in terms of showing a character kind of losing their shit. You get um, that. You you get the. And I think that's, that's telling about the the seventies, like early seventies as well. Is that Polanski um, kind of vibe is is being picked up by other directors? If you look at Repulsion, or if you look at the second instalment of the the Apartment trilogy and Rosemary's Baby, with those characters, those internal voices telling them what they're seeing is real or not real um, that technique is then very very quickly picked up by other people and like kind of shoehorned in and it's actually as, as shoehorned as it is into this one um, it's not done for any reason which feels exploitative it's actually the backbone of the story itself the narrative um, which I think in itself works really really well it may be cherry picking things but at least it's trying to adapt it into a way which feels more fitting of this story yeah I, I totally agree. I, I think we're in agreement that you know when we get to our our list discussion, maybe not going to be at the top of the list, but again, worth your time as uh, as a viewer because um, it does a lot of things right. It just you know make a sandwich and <laughs> the, about the end of the second act and come back to the end. The end's really good. The end, yeah, the end. The end has one. It has one of those uh, kind of uh, Carnival of Souls vibes. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. Um, right, so let's move on. Instead of picking one of yours again, let's just get... There, there is there's a couple of names on this list here that are elephants in the room that just they need to be discussed. And let's, let's target one of them out of the way right away. Uh, let's look at director Dario Argento's second instalment. This is his second ever movie. It's the second instalment of his Animal Trilogy. This is Cat Nine Tails came out less than a year because <laughs> that's what the guy was doing in fact the whole animal trilogy came out in a, the space of about two years um which is insane <laughs> think about it it's too much too much it's just like argento just being like right i'm wanting right i've done a giallo and i'm just going to do them all and then i'm never going to do them again until my next movie flops and then I'm going to give you Deep Red, though, which is pretty fucking good. Which um, is an amazing movie. Yeah. yeah, so, like, he's he's still he's still kind of trying... And, and to his credit, at least this one... I mean, Argento is always... Um, the movie's The Cat and Nine Tails, by the way. Uh, this movie, at least on some level, is Argento not fully understanding what really worked in its entirety um, with Bird with the Crystal Plumage. So he is using some of the techniques, but later Argento Jali are are almost carbon copies of 
crystal plumage, but he just starts really fucking with the, the elements he can fuck with while keeping that, that kind of central that central tone. This one is not like that at all. So this one doesn't really feature the the kind of uh, the foreign sort of to this person uh, who witnesses the, the, the crime and then will ultimately reveal the killer by the end of it. Um, this one kind of plays with ideas of that one. But what I love about this movie is that it is far more touching a story there is there is some really touching elements between particularly the the, the kind of blind um, former journalist and 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 the, the characters he interacts with in particular his I think is 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 it his grandson granddaughter uh, something like that I I know he says her parents are dead yeah and I. I I was kind of under the impression that maybe it wasn't, it was an adoption scenario, maybe right. even, I don't know. Yeah. So I, L- Lori is her name, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. That's a fantastic whimsical kind of, I love using that word whimsical and whimsy, but there's this kind of, there's a great deal of that between their interactions, which, you know, is juxtaposed against these violent murders that are happening in the background. Some of which are pretty preposterous, including that train death. And the elevator death, which is just so quintessential in Argento. It's just like the most bonkers way to kill your killer. Um, yeah. I kind of love it. Kind of love it. Not going to lie. He, he only, only kind of outdoes that in the next one, where he does um, Four Flies in Grey Velvet. And someone gets dragged for about five minutes in the back of a truck before being catapulted to their death, which is kind of amazing as well. Um, And it kind of rips it off in deep red. But yeah, so the synopsis for this one, listed on IMDb, uh, a newspaper reporter and a retired blind journalist try to solve a series of killings connected to a pharmaceutical company's experimental top secret research projects. And in doing so, both become targets of the killer. Um, So... Uh, I'll do some trivia and then we can talk about it. Um, although this is one of his most successful films, this is Dario Argento's least favourite amongst his pictures, which makes no sense at all because Argento, you've made the car player, come on. <laughs> and Dracula. <laughs> I'm assuming this IMDb trivia is pre-Dracula 3D. I'm hoping. Still, I'm... he knew he had it in him to make a movie <laughs> like that and should have been immediately apologetic. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I I love this. I really genuinely. I, I people know there there is a degree of bias when it comes to Argento on this podcast with me and the specific subgenre of which he is famed for. Um, I just I just think this is there's a lot of directors. He becomes certainly a caricature of of himself later on in his career where he's basically just replaying his greatest hits over and over again in movies. There was a lot of directors in Italy that did that pretty much straight away and I kind of like the fact that Argento has that a super confident movie in Bird with a Crystal Plumage and then this time he decides to take I mean it is for for intense but it follows a similar follows similar beat structure but in the case of this one he just He's just experimenting. He's, he's trying to see what works, what doesn't work. He's putting combination of characters together, which feel wholly different from what you would usually see at the time. Um, I think it's shot beautifully. You'll never hear me say an Argento movie shot poorly. Even Dracula is shot great. Um, it's just the movie itself is shit. Um, and the special effects, <laughs> which were <laughs> yeah, clearly made yeah. by people that were in the... Uh, in, um, 
inverted uh, quotes there uh, special bowl um, you know the old inverted commas they're special I, people I understand what that means you know what that means um, but yeah this is like it's, it's, it's scored beautifully the acting's really good um, it's, it's probably one that's aged in terms of some of the cheesiness of the movie it's a little bit cheesy in bits but I think it makes it so different from the rest of Argento's back catalogue that that actually works in its favour um, and this is back in the time period where Argento's still getting really great performances by the majority of the cast uh, <laughs> kind of loses that in, in later Argento career um, but yeah I, th- I thoroughly enjoy this one it's bonkers um, but most most jolly of the time we're starting to get a bit well we can do this we don't need to make sense of our killer well why didn't you say so wait till you see this um and they do become like scooby-doo where the reveal of the killer is someone that you've only ever met once and it was in the first two seconds in a flashback sequence of the guy parking a boat in the background who would have got away with it if i hadn't been for those meddling kids and their pesky dog um but yeah, kind of, kind of love this movie. Uh, you watched this one today. This was the last one you watched. What? Um, you are not the biggest Argento fan, I know that, but you are appreciative of his work. Um, had it been long since you've seen Cat and Nine Tails, uh, and if so, how did it hold up for you? Um, I had never seen Cat and Nine Tails. Fuck off. Uh, I can't in this case. <laughs> um, I'm recording, Duncan. Unless you want to be talking to yourself for the next two hours. <laughs> Also, also, what I said was totally true. Uh, I'd never, yeah, no, I'd never seen Cat of Nine Tails um, because it's kind of early. It is the 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 uh, perfect storm of early Argento and early Giallo for me. Mm-hmm. Of like, you know, I guess the two go together, like you know, kids and drugs. But um, I was like, ah, eh, I'm not sure if this is really kind of up my alley. Um, Carl Malden. Being in it is a big uh, draw for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, it's so. All right. So my experience with it was I'd already turned the corner where I was I was way more open to seeing a, another Giallo. Um, and I like the mystery of this. I like the premise of it as as weird as it is and as silly science as it is. Mm-hmm. I kind of dig that part of it. Um, and it's more like. A lot of the giallos uh, tend to be, hey, there's this killer. Like you said, you know, it's they're being observed, uh, and and somebody uh, gets drawn into this murder mystery or this series of murders, and and ends up becoming a target. And yeah. and same thing here, you know. Um, but uh, I do like the relationships in in this uh, quite a bit. I like the character of the reporter a whole lot. Yeah, I think he's just enough of an asshole that I can really get behind him <laughs> as a character. Um, yeah, and it's got some fun deaths. I like. It's hard to look at this movie and say that it's in any way revolutionary, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's a really fine example of its type. Yes. And and I'll tell you, here's where we fucked up, Duncan. Oh, this is and as we were going through this list, uh, and and because of my you know turning the corner on the the uh, giallo, I realized that what is not on our list of ten that I feel like should be that falls into this category, and I would almost would argue would take the place of Cat of Nine Tails had I been smarter, <laughs> is um. 
lizard in a woman's skin. See, no, this the see you see that you see that. However, I just did. Yeah, you see that. Um, I am not the biggest fan of lizard in a woman's skin or woman in a lizard skin or skin of a woman on a lizard or yeah lizard I, skin shoes. Um, I'm not, I just I, think it's more interesting. It, it, uh, as a, from a character point of view, I think it, it's more interesting. It's a more it. interesting character piece for sure, but I think that one suffers moments of let's scare Jessica to death and that there is a middle section of about 20 minutes where my interest just goes. I never used sure. to be, I okay. never I never used to be that way. Um when myself, Jeff X Martin and Doug Tilly were doing these kind of Fulci episodes, like um we did a run of them, and when we did early Fulci we did this show that had, and I forget the name of it, but it was like one of the early Fulci jazz. Um, we did uh, the the woman in a lizard skin, um, and we did our lizard in a woman's skin, <laughs> our woman wearing lizard skin. I don't know. Uh, and then we also did uh, don't torture a duckling. And what what stood out to me really really quickly was that that middle one, you know, was it didn't grab my attention all the way through. And you are you are in, you are correct when it comes to directors pushing things out really kind of trying to almost subvert the conception of I mean by the time this one had come out Cat and Nine Tales there had already been a flood <laughs> you know what I mean in that year there'd been loads things were getting rushed in and thrown at the at cinemas so quickly for people to go and see that Argento comes across and doesn't really change the paradigm too much um, but in fairness to him, he'd only just made the movie that had kicked it off, so he, he was not to know that that was the direction Italian cinema was going to go. Um, but Fulci had already done a few. So Fulci by that point was like, right, I've done a couple of these stories, let's start really twisting things up. Um, and my, my only concern is that I think that as a, a film that maintains my attention throughout, I think Cat and Nine Tales does it better than... There's no argument when it comes to premise... Um, uh, uh, lizard in a woman's skin is uh, it's got a better premise by far. Uh, I just don't think the execution's on the same level. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm just glad I, I feel like I can have this conversation and understand it. Yeah, dude, um, I, I'm so excited to, to hear that you you now have a bit of a bug for this because I know you're like you're very much like me. Once you start to kind of think, oh, this is quite interesting, you start to mine for titles, and that's kind of exciting because I get a feeling that me and you're going to have some great conversations down the road. Um, about about some pretty phenomenal uh, Jally movies that people just don't talk about um, and some Jallo movies which do not deserve the attention <laughs> that they get because some of them are not good. Um, so anything else you want to say about Canning Tale? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, no, I, I, like I, I respect it a lot more than I ever did and I really had a good time watching it. But again, I think there are some heavy hitters on this list that... Oh yeah. You yeah, know. Some some powerful, powerful. Let's not destroy the second segment, Bo. Yeah, like, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I can't look at these movies and be like, eh. all right. I'm, well, all right, I'm good. I'm good. I'm refocused. Let's do this. Let's talk about one that is a whole hell of a lot of fun um, and stars arguably one of the biggest names in horror of all time. Um, is the one with the abs. Oh, no, that's the wrong word. It's the abominable Dr. Fives, uh, directed by Robert Fust. Fust? Um, who's, <laughs> uh, who's mostly he's mostly done TV stuff he did very few movies but he did this one and the follow up um, and the synopsis for this one a, a doctor, scientist 
organist and biblical scholar Anton Fabes seeks revenge yeah. on the nine doctors he's, he considers responsible for his wife's death. Stars Vincent Price, Virginia North and Peter Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> originally um, was uh, advertised as being Vincent Price 100 feature film because they wanted a gimmick back this is when they used to use gimmicks for everything it's amazing sure um, they don't do it as much now but I wish they did he's uh, a hundredth film so it would get people excited to go and see it and they didn't need to do that because this movie's got it um, I kind of love this one uh, yeah Peter Cushing was originally supposed to be in this one as well but he he was supposed to be in quite a lot of movies in 71 in particular but his wife uh, was in very very poor health and died um, not a whole hell of a lot long after really um, but he, he cut out this one he, he couldn't he could not do this one purely because of that and I, I kind of feel that there's a like part of me would really like to see that movie they, they did share some performances but Peter Cushion on screen is a fucking delight in any role that I would have loved to have seen him kind of take on that one um, what I'll say about this movie is I've covered this one before uh, on this show and people that have listened to me talk about this one know that I fucking love this movie I, I think it's absolutely brilliant I think it's such a ballsy movie that you can have Vincent Price um, not make the facial contusions and smiles and you, you change his voice because that's how confident you are with the rest of the story Um like, there, there is no Vincent Price dialogue at all in this movie for close to 10 minutes. That's how confident they are with this movie. And let's be honest, when you think of Vincent Price, you think the voice. Of course, that's why you think, you can't not think about that iconic voice. Um, and the fact that this movie just didn't feel the need to. Um, in fact, to take that back, I have written here actually, it's about 30 minutes before Fibes actually utters a word, which is even more. I think it's 10 minutes before there's any dialogue in the movie. Um, it's at times it, it kind of plays into some of the things that we do see in the, the, the 1970s with Price especially with a movie that will be discussed down the line in Theatre of Blood which is this idea of Price seeking revenge using some sort of fabled you know series of grisly grueling deaths linked to some sort of text or some author or something in the case of this one it's the Egyptian plagues Um but it's, it's difficult not to love one the movie <laughs> two the performances three the deaths and four the use of color this is like this is a vibrant very beautiful movie to look at um why did it make your list bo um well none of those reasons <laughs> uh no all of that uh, yeah it's like vincent price's performance in this is so subdued mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. Uh, because it's all done with, you know, him almost making a motion with his face. Uh, it's really cool to, like, when he's doing the, you know, thing hooked up to his neck, you can see his throat working and stuff. Like, he's he's given a great performance. And uh, this movie is Saw before there was ever Saw. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it, I mean, it totally is. It is... <laughs> I, you know, I have some people that need to learn a lesson, like down to and including the end of this movie when it's like, I have buried a key in your child. <laughs> and <laughs> and he's like, you know, acid will drop on his face. Cut your 
child open. And, you know, all that stuff is totally a Saw movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like, I don't know what the hell is going on with his assistant. I don't know how she came on board. I like that she's there. I love the fact that her name's Volnavio. <laughs> Right, which is almost <laughs> like having someone named Volva. Well, it's, it's, it's something that, and she, it's like Virginia North is hot as fuck in this movie. Yeah, sure, Oof. sure. I mean, yeah, she just is this beautiful woman that hangs out and occasionally helps out Dr. Fibes. And it's like, I don't know what you're getting out of this. <laughs> uh, but all right, whatever. And and I also like that this movie, spoilers, um, Dr. Fibes has a plan. He has been plotting for years. He executes it to the letter, yeah. and then the movie ends. Yeah, this is this is one of the very few occasions I can think at this time, and that's 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 primarily the saw connection as well, out with the traps, um, and all the rest is Jigsaw's plan comes to fruition at the end of Saw, like that whole plan works exactly like he wanted it to, um, and yeah, the abominable Doctor Fibes, it's exactly the same. Fibes gets exactly what he wants. Um, at the end of this movie. And that in itself um, is a slight break from tradition. I mean, th- there are certain movies where you get like things like that. We we'll mentioned Rosemary's Baby. That's that's kind of in the same boat, really. Um, but we don't get loads of them. And I love the fact... And I, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can look at that. Maybe it's done that way because Vincent Price is your main draw. Um, but I love how they try and make him, once again this kind of anti-hero yes a bad thing happened to his wife his, his wife died and that's you know that that's a horrible thing and you know maybe the doctors are responsible but you know he takes it to the nth degree <laughs> it is sort of vengeance vengeance will be mine you know it's just like creating the most elaborate intricate ways of killing people which i kind of love um and it's, the it, locust one is in particular a favorite. Yeah, it's it, like the way this movie sets up everything is phenomenal. And I will go as far as to say the the sequel, which kind of follows suit, um, really to this one, which and it's a lot more campy than the the, the original. Um, I kind of love that one as well for very similar reasons. It's just they have an idea of what they're doing. The very it's a very confident movie. Um, and like I say, it's interesting that this director really kind of didn't do much in the way of movies after this. He just went, kind of started doing a lot of TV stuff, um, but was very active, a very busy director. Um, but I just think it's, I think it's really pretty cool, you know, just that, how they, they just decide that this is, is one of the, when you have an actor like Vincent Price, to me, the Vincent Price performances that become the standout ones are the ones where he is almost... He's a different Vincent Price. It's where they do something different to the character. Um, so this one stands out. Theatre of Blood stands out to me. Uh, Witchfinder General stands out to me because they are not the atypical Price performance. You know, Last Man on Earth. They, these, these sort of things where he is... He is not doing the roles which, you know, everyone just thinks of when they think of Vincent Price. Um, he's doing these different takes on things um, and moving away from the things that made him popular because... Like we say, that Vincent Price really doesn't the the rubber mask he wears in this one doesn't allow him to really do much in the way of any sort of emote. Um, his voice is robotic. I love the fact he's got like a cyborg band. Um, <laughs> yeah, he had time while he was putting this plot together of like I will invent a band, and and did. 
Yeah. And just uh, like I my in in my mind, most of his time is spent silently plotting, building his clockwork band and grooming his sideburns, which are tremendous in this movie. They are majestic. <laughs> it is in, in the sideburns hall of fame. This, <laughs> this has its own light on it. Um, it's, it's yeah, a wonderful it, it, movie. It really is. It, yeah, it, it's just the best. And uh, I have to point out one of my favorite cinematic visual gags in history oh tell me. which happens in this movie and it's the unicorn death mm-hmm. which is patently ridiculous yeah <laughs> but it's the shot as they're like well how do we get him out of this after the guys listeners so what happens is uh dr fives catapults a brass unicorn head mm-hmm. into the chest of his enemy pinning him to a wall behind him and so to remove this gentleman they realize that they have to uh twist the unicorn head to kind of unthread it through the wall (laughs) like you would a screw and there's a great shot of a guy in the lobby of this hotel where this murder has taken place looking at his newspaper and you hear the police kind of grunting and working yeah and you see this dude's feet just swing around the edge like as they're unscrewing it like the body's turning circular (laughs) and is the dumbest gag in this movie where someone also has their face eaten off by locusts thanks to brussels sprout extract or something yeah it's just it's bananas and wonderful and if you've never seen abominable dr fives what is wrong with you yeah, it worked. It's like it's, this is one of these weird ones of had this movie. If this movie came out um, post Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, it's a little too like Doctor Fives could have been a Batman TV show villain. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, definitely. It just it has that. It just fits. It's it has comfortably um, a couple of years before you know TCM really just changed the landscape of horror, uh, and it exists in there because that you know that movie that movie's the great killer of of a lot of you know a lot of the amicus stuff hammer stuff because it's a different world at the end of that one and speaking of different worlds Bo um, yes we alluded to a certain movie uh, that you picked and um, I've discussed before on Chronicle podcast discussed it in the last season well movie called The Devils uh, directed by this little guy called Ken Russell um, st- starring Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed and uh, the synopsis for this one 17th century France Father Urbain Grandier seeks to protect the city of Loudon from the corrupt establishment of Cardinal Richelieu hysteria occurs when the city uh, in the city when he is accused of witchcraft by a sexually repressed nun now this movie to this day as we sit just now has still never been released in its entirety it's still it's still banned in its entirety um, and we're kind of at the stage now that I don't know about you I don't think we're ever going to see it I, I really 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 don't I think Warner Brothers have had many 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 opportunities to release this huge petitions swarms of people saying it they've released it and what they class is their most complete version that I, I, at this stage I just don't see it um, but this movie is hugely 
hugely influential because, like you said earlier on, Bo, this is the movie that changes the goalposts, notably. You know, that doesn't just, like, move them a bit to the side, either side, but this one, like, sets them so far apart that people are like, we can do a movie. We can do this. We can get away with this. As filmmakers, we can push the boundaries so far. Um, and Ken Russell did this one off the back of a, a very successful movie that he made before this one. And he was like, yeah, that's what I kind of do. This movie, The Devils, it's going to kind of touch with the subject matter. And I genuinely don't think when he was making it, he thought he was making the movie that he did. And it just went that way. Um, who who knows but Duncan. Yes. The fucking balls on this movie. <laughs> this, this fucking guy. The fucking balls, Bob. The fucking balls. Oh. And, and see, this movie is genuinely one of those ones where you watch it where you're like that. Right, so everyone was just eating acid. It, dude, it, from <laughs> John Lennon screaming confess. <laughs> There, there is not a frame of this movie that doesn't have something amazing going on. Yeah. It is a landmark of cinema. Mm-hmm. It is the most brazenly heretical film that has ever been made. <laughs> that is also strangely about the spiritual freedom of man. Mm-hmm. The fucking balls <laughs> uh, i fucking mean balls in this guy <laughs> like oliver reed is amazing in this movie like so his character is just fascinating because he is at once this uh, this libertine uh you know a, a man of the cloth but also is knocking up the the chick uh, who dresses like Harley Quinn for some reason, <laughs> and but is also genuinely concerned with the the personal and and moral freedom of the people in this city, mm-hmm. and so it's such a fascinating character because you are immediately confronted with the flaws of the man, but over time you also see that there's this essential goodness to him as well. Yeah. And that somehow the extreme of either, you know, is what we see in this film. It's either the extreme of, of chastity or the extreme of debauchery. And it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a minor miracle of a movie. It's, a, it's amazing that it exists. It's amazing that somebody released it. Uh, it's amazing that we can still get our hands on it. <laughs> like, yeah, it feels yeah. like there should have been burnings in amphitheaters of this film, but it's it, it's incredible. Like every performance is great. It just builds and builds and builds until it it, it reaches this insane conclusion. Uh, except the very end of the movie, which is this somber little moment of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. And oh, Duncan. <laughs> Oh, it feels so good. It's what, what I look like out with the and, and you know this this movie has almost endless trivia about it. It's one of the most cut and censored movies ever made, um, which is insane. Um, you know because I think I've seen movies with content which is, I think it's the way it's handled. I think that's what people just couldn't. I think that's what like had this been like a like a grubby little grindhouse movie, then. 
no one would be talking about it. But I think it's because it's at the hands of an actual auteur, director, and Ken Russell, um, who is who is known <laughs> for for creating like these these temples um, of the mind, so to speak. These visions, which are just they stay with you. They're iconic. Well beyond it. Oliver Reed's, you know, has said many times, this is his favourite film and no wonder his performance is incredible. I mean, like, Oscars should have went to him this year. Um, 71, they should just went, well, it's an old contest, ladies and gents. Oscar goes to Oliver Reed for the movie that we can't see in its entirety, The Devils, yay! They should give him an Oscar this year <laughs> for The Devils just because I watched it again. It's, it, like, it is a phenomenal performance. It's, yeah, um, it's amazing. But... There are scenes in this movie, like when the, the the whole like kind of temple just breaks out in this lurid fucking orgy from nowhere. <laughs> like Satan is making us do it. No, Satan really isn't. Um, <laughs> Satan says, "Shove it up my ass." All right then. Uh, you know, it just it goes. This movie goes like at a, like at a tear as well. This one is one like we were talking about things like let's scare Jessica to death have these moments that kind of sag in the middle. This movie has no such moments at all. And even when the movie is trying to contain quieter moments, they're still so well composed, um, and so well acted and thought through and shot and and delivered that, that this is this is like a labyrinth to the eyes. There are so many ways you can go down and so many ways you can interpret things as well. Books have been published on explanations and interpretations of what happens in Ken Russell's The Devils. Um, and it's one of those, like you say, it's, it's weird to think that a movie like this exists. What's weirder is that it exists for people to see. Uh, and what is tragic is it's not, it doesn't exist in a way to see that the director intended. Um, which is the the biggest crime I think uh, against the devils is that Ken Russell has had a vision of how he saw this movie and it's entirely and no one gets to see that and I can't, like from the many times I've seen this movie that's what I want to see that's the bit I want to see I want to see like if everything else is as perfect as it is then what else did he have in here that gave him his full vision of this movie and that's what I kind of want to see um, it's an incredible movie and like you say it it changes everything this movie changes it's the first in many many movies in the 70s where people are just like you know how you thought we did movies like this and we told stories this way no this is how we do it now um, and some of those experiments are carried forward some of them aren't some of them are like these weird oddities of one off cinema um, but when you have a guy who just so clearly says I'm going to make a movie about the church and this is what he makes um, it's incredible you could you could not make a movie like you couldn't make a movie with even remotely half the content of this movie now and we live in a freer society Bo. so there you go in theory in theory <laughs> or, or have have our walls just been blown up Duncan oh I see what you're saying just to make way for a wasteland yeah I know what you're saying Bo they Tore down paradise and put up a parking lot. Which uh, that's <laughs> that's the real message of Ken Russell's The Devils. <laughs> it's just environmental awareness. Um, yeah, it's yeah. It's really that, fucking oh, good. It's really fucking that good. That fucking movie. This fucking the, the fucking balls on this <laughs> it, guy. You motherfucker. You just can't. You. 
I, you know, the last thing I'll say about it, and then we'll shut up and move on to another uh, film. But watching it, as I, like I've seen The Devil's probably, I don't, that was probably my fourth or fifth time mm-hmm. watching it. And it's still jaw dropping. Like the whole time I'm watching, I'm just like, this fucking guy. <laughs> like, it's just amazing that this is what got committed to screen. Not because it's so offensive or anything, but just it's such a unique vision and there's even an argument to be made like is this a horror film at all mm-hmm. and my argument is if not that then what yeah yeah i agree i agree a hundred percent um now this one is unassuming until you see basically what the director went on to do um this guy this fucking guy as well but this fucking guy um twins of evil which was a late addition to the list. Originally, I had Psychomania on, on this list, and then Bo very aptly pointed out that even though the film was shot in 71, we do have a rule. Now, this is worth saying up front. I don't know if I actually recorded this in the previous episode, and we're all we're already halfway through our movies on this episode, that we made a, a distinct ruling that there would be no TV movies uh, for, our, for our top tens, and there would be... The movie would exist in the year that it was released, not the year that it was made, because... That is a real danger, especially when you look at movies from decades like the 70s. They sometimes were shot like a year and a half before they made it out just because of editing schedules and stuff. Um, So this one is one you were watching recently and this one took the place of Psychomania purely because I was like, why did I not put this above Psychomania? I prefer this movie anyway. It's one of these weird omissions uh, that you find after the fact where you're like, no, I should have picked this movie and I was afforded the opportunity. So I picked Twins of Evil. Directed by John How How John How Now Brown Cow, um, who, like I was saying, is actually when you look at it, you're like, oh, he did the Twins of Evil, but yeah, that was just the start. The guy, like, well, a couple of years later, did the Legend of Hell House, mm. <laughs> yeah, and they did this little movie called Escape to Witch Mountain, which is really fucking good. Yeah, um, it's a really good movie. And he did this movie called Watcher in the Woods, which scarred me as a child. <laughs> fucking totally scarred me um so he's like guy was pretty good at the horror um and he does this movie this is this is our hammer movie of the 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 show ladies and gents there are there are a couple more uh, as the decades go uh, as the years go through this decade but um this is certainly one of the highlights uh twins of evil a religious sect led by gustav will hunt uh all all suspected women of witchcraft killing a number of innocent victims. Young Katie, Gustav's niece, will involve herself in a devilish cult and become an instrument of justice in the region. Um, right, you watched this one recently out with prep for the show because I was saying earlier on when you get on these little kind of trends, you kind of follow them through and you've went on this, you do this every now and again, you're like that, I should watch some Hammer movies and then you pick some that you haven't watched in a while or maybe never seen and you kind of work your way through them and this landed on this one um, which was fortuitous for me when I picked it I was like Bo doesn't need to watch this one again he's only seen it recently um, I kind of love this movie uh, I, I think this one shows a, a distinct maturity that a lot of Hammer Horror movies by 1971 had kind of lost Um because there are some kind of juvenile ones that come out just before this one and some juvenile ones that come out right after this one. Um, but this one famously doesn't star Christopher Lee in the role of a vampire because Christopher Lee at this point, was he'd made four vampire films the previous year as Dracula and that was him 
winding down his Dracula performances. Only had to do four that year. Um, so he's not in it, but Peter Cushion's in it. This is one of my favourite Peter Cushion Hammer performances. I think he's fucking great as the Witchfinder, the, the leader of the Brotherhood, which is just a great name for any organisation of men that kills women. Um, what will we call herself? The Brotherhood. No vaginas allowed. Um, right. This penis as far as the eye can see. Um, it's all cock or you walk. Uh, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, but at the start of this movie, we have these um, rather homely, I lie, they're fucking gorgeous twins who are travelling to stay with their uncle and aunt. Their uncle just happens to be none other than Peter Cushion, uh, who leads this group called the Brotherhood as they are taking the law into their own hands they're basically finding women and burning them for the crimes of witchcraft because there is evidence of vampirism in the town but what makes this one really interesting is that everyone including the brotherhood from the start kind of know who the baddie is who the villain is and it's this count guy that lives up on the hill in this big spooky castle must be him the lightning crashes every time we look at it um, right. you know, it must be this guy up here uh, Johnny also Fangs. his name is Konstein <laughs> yeah, or as I like to call him Johnny Fangs uh, Count Johnny Fangs up there in, uh, in Satan Castle uh, might be the guy responsible because he, he blatantly flaunts the fact that he doesn't worship God he's you know he, he worships Satan um, but he's protected by the emperor of the region and that's why they won't lay a hand on them. So the Brotherhood are, for, for all intents and purposes, rounding up innocent women and killing them as a sign of things they can try and do, um, whilst ultimately being powerless at what they need to do. Uh, the twins arrive. One of them is very meek and mild-mannered. The other one is a bit racy, but she's my favourite, uh, even yeah. though they're identical twins. So she's my favourite. Um, she wants to walk on the wild side. She More, does. She wants to walk on the Karnstein side. <laughs> the Karnstein side. Um, and she she is a she is she goes openly seeking uh, the vampire, becoming a vampiress herself. Um, a, a rather thirsty one because she she gets to work on the town. Um, and then there's a bit of tomfoolery, a bit of jiggery pokery, as they say. Um, and the movie ends in a, a pretty spectacular hammer fashion, which is abrupt to the point in credits. Gotta love those hammer endings. Um, yep. Bo, what do you think of Twins of Evil? Uh, I love Twins of Evil. Uh, you know, as we were talking uh, earlier, um, I, I think there's something very charming and almost naive feeling about some of these hammer films and even though it's one of the m more mature examples because there's a little booby oh uh, like when those boobies come out finally though there's a hallelujah that, that echoes around my house i was like let me see them let me see them oh hallelujah I, man it you know as as purient as it is <laughs> i am not above it duncan when the 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 hammer lovelies uh, when when Hammer made that turn of like you know what every now and again a little bit of boobage yeah um, but that's kind of all it is like it's not ever completely salacious it, no. it's just like oh somebody's shirt came open a little and and that's <laughs> like that's the coyness of these movies in a yeah. way and that, that's what British. I find kind of it's very British like the, <laughs> yes. on, on the flip side of that when you look at something like the Carry On movies. Uh, which are, you know, were out in the 70s and stuff, and you look at 
and the, the boobs are used in a kind of similar way there it's like oh there's some boobies let's all laugh at the boobs now let's go because let's, we're British let's put them away stiff upper lip y'all um, right. stiff upper lip y'all I'm going to hell for that one um, but yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean what the fuck um, but yeah that's, that's and they do that in Hammer movies and Hammer movies kind of revel in the fact that they can do it but it's like you're saying at no point they're like that now here comes the money shot rip your right. cock in half when this tit appears on the screen you repressed heathens um, it's more like yeah, yeah it just kind of happens the camera camera's always very polite about it and then we move on to the next scene yeah and you know I mean all these hammer movies have an element of titillation because mm-hmm. the, you know the ladies may not be showing their chesticles <laughs> but uh, clearly they're you know they're the, they are on present, uh, they have been presented for the audience and all the boostiers and they've and, been presented for the adults that went to see the movie. This is back in a time frame where Hammer Horror was made by adults for adults. They weren't made. Yeah. none of these movies are made for kids. Like today, we have horror movies packaged as PG 13s or 12As in the UK, um, which you know have content in a particular way because they can just slide it by the censor not you know these were on double belt these were adult movies back then so you could get boobage um or pitsicles or whatever you call them but yeah but despite all that like i said there's a charm it was chesticles by the way um, <laughs> so um <laughs> not pitsicles all right i'll let yours better uh, it, again innocent like the the hammer films in a way but yeah this this one's a lot of fun peter cushing's great in it um you know it's a great time it moves at a nice clip like all these movies uh do uh at the core of it there is this nice dichotomy between the two sisters one who wants to be chaste and virtuous and fall in love and the other who's like he worships satan you say Mm -hmm. i'm definitely fucking him (laughs) um and 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 off she goes off she fucks to to fuck karnstein um yeah it's it's a fun movie it's a great time uh, i don't think it's terribly deep uh but it's a blast to watch definitely definitely well let's uh let's swing on um and take a look at another one of mine uh, so let's do the house that drip blood this is our entry from amicus um one of those good old anthologies that we know and love once again, ridiculous casting for this one. We have Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Pertwee, uh, who was a doctor in Doctor Who, for those that don't know that. Not that I have much love for Doctor Who at all, but we should recognise that. Big name in, in UK cinema. Um, and uh, this one is directed by Peter Duffel, uh, or Duffel. I think it's going to be Duffel, um, but we'll say Duffel. Uh, <laughs> Duffeldorf. Um, and yeah so this one kind of classic amicus release in that it's going to be a series of tales linked by someone talking about the events that happened somewhere Uh, it's the premise that we were all very familiar with by 1971 um, and we get some pretty great ones in the 70s overall from amicus but this is this is heady amicus this is when they're firing pretty much on all cylinders. They're, they have a model that works really, really well, and they're quite happy to keep doing that, and they're just going to do it. Originally, the, the title for the movie was going to be Death in the Maiden, which is pretty crap, um, and eventually they settled for The House of Drip Blood, which is just... 
<laughs> the house does not drip blood, but we get a lot of movies in the seventies that do this. Um, doesn't drip blood. May crave blood, but does not drip blood. Um, it's the first feature film um, credited to Peter Duffel, who was another British TV director. A lot of these guys did this at the time. You know, hardworking TV directors got a shot making a Hammer horror movie or making um, an Amicus production movie purely because these studios were doing like five, six movies a year. Um, and a lot of their kind of mainstay directors were working at the time, so they would bring other people in to give them the opportunity to make something. Um, there's there's a <laughs> um, original. This is a bit of the trivia that I read about this one, which I kind of loved. Um, on the film's initial UK release, the British censor wanted to give it an A rating, which is the equivalent of a PG. Uh, because of the lack of gore. Fearing that this would harm the box office returns, the distributors asked for it to be re-rated X or they wouldn't release it and the censor concurred. So, <laughs> this is like <laughs> one of those rare occasions where a director is actually trying to change the grading to harsher grading. <laughs> because of like that. Right. No one's going to come and see... Street cred. Yeah, no one's going to come and see the house that drip blood if kids can go and see it. Come on, man! Um... Christopher Lee was obviously given top billing in this movie because uh, he was the biggest name at the time. Um, but he's like, I think he's like in the third segment. So he's very late in this movie before he shows up. Uh, Peter Cushion almost didn't do the movie because once again in this this particular year his wife was very ill. He tried to get out of doing it but contractually made the movie. Um, there's a couple of in-jokes mentioned on IMDb and I did get this one actually. Uh, <laughs> One of the characters at one point talks about Dracula, and then very quickly adds that he's, he's Dracula that he likes is the Bela Lugosi one, and not the new guy, which is obviously a nod at Christopher Lee, a little sure. in-joke there. Um, but yeah, this the whole story revolves around this possessed house, um, and we are taken through the tales of basically four people and their families and loved ones that go and stay at the house and the events that befall them. Um, what did you make of the House of Drip Blood? Had you seen this one before or was this one that I was picking from obscurity for you? No, no, no. I, I've seen this one um, and it, it's it, uh, a very fun amicus entry. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like Christopher Lee in this quite a bit. I think yeah. he's... Uh, that segment is probably my favourite. Mm-hmm. Uh, um yeah i mean it it, you know like every anthology you kind of judge the film based on the overall uh vibe and and the individual stories uh can be kind of hit and miss sometimes i think all of the stories in this are okay to very good yes um like i i really like the christopher lee one i like the peter cushing one um the uh denim elliott story the one that kind of starts it off it, it just seems so telegraphed <laughs> that it, it was like, okay, I know where we're headed with this. So let's, let's get there. Um, but it, yeah, it's really good. And, uh, the one with John Pertwee is ridiculously silly, mm-hmm. but see above re twins of evil. Yeah. There's a bit of Ingrid Pitt as a sexy vampirist. Mm-hmm. And that is never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. In fact, I'm going to say I applaud you, sir, for, for mentioning that on here. And I applaud the movie makers for making that movie. That yeah, I like, love Ingrid Pitt. She's the best. And, you know, she is the the quintessential hammer whore uh, actress, I think. And, um, it, you know, it's nice to see her in totally legit movies like the wicker man yeah 
and also nice to see her having some fun where she's just kind of this diva actress who, you know, becomes a, a vampire. Uh, that's not the thrust of the story, but it happens and it's awesome because uh, she's way better at it. Uh, <laughs> than John Pertwee is. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, another one of those things of, like, you kind of know what you're getting into with this. There, There's a baseline level of quality to those Amicus films mm-hmm. that you know you've got at least a, a, a decent movie on your hands. And this is, uh, I you know, I don't know This is uh, that this is a uh, Tales from the Crypt, which no. I think is uh, a superior film. But it's... It, it's really, really good. And the Christopher Lee one, like I said, is it's it's almost worth seeing him being cruel to a child, <laughs> which is strangely satisfying. I don't know why I like that so yeah, much. Yeah, but it's, seeing... the, it's the reveal in that story that he's, he's being cruel to the child because he is terrified of the child. <laughs> well, it's true, but when you don't know that and he's just like, give me that doll. <laughs> I uh, will burn your doll. I'll burn it in front of you. Look at it. Um, I will burn it in the eye of Saruman. Uh, no, that is decades <laughs> later. But I know it's coming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, because I know all. I'm Christopher Lee. Uh, yeah, and in this in this movie, he's reading Lord of the Rings. It's almost as if he foretold this. One of the scenes he's actually reading Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which was his favorite yeah. book, incidentally. So he probably just brought on set and I like to spell them. <laughs> right. Like Chris, what do you want to do today? Whatever I like. <laughs> All right, I will read my book, and you yeah, will film uh, me, Mister Producer Man. I'm at a really exciting part. <laughs> uh, one day they, <laughs> one day they will miscast me. I always saw myself as a bit of a Gandalf the Grey, but because I have played Dracula so many times now, they will not give me this role. They will make me evil instead. Run, you fools. <laughs> you uh, shall not pass. Which, in theory, actually just sounds identically to how Sir Ian McKellen did it as well. So it turns out, yeah, that, maybe there isn't that much of a difference between the two of them with that line. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right. This one is is very much standard amicus. This is what they did. This is what, what they're known for. This is what they're still known for. Um that studio yeah, I, was built on the foundations of these are the movies we're going to give you and there's almost an understanding that in terms of quality two or three out of the four are going to be pretty good to excellent and one of them's usually not going to be all that great and you get the occasional one where across the board it just all works uh, Dr. Terror's uh, House of Horrors for example across the board is excellent um, but for every one of them you get you get a, a House of Drip Blood it's uh, again. Uh, I feel like we're uh, we're damning it with faint praise. Yeah. Because if you've never seen it, you should totally watch it. It's it's really really good. Um. But yeah, it's just not not the best of the bunch when it comes to Amicus. No, and we're talking. Oh, like, we're linking this one in quite nicely because we we were talking about you know female portrayals of vampires and Ingrid Pitt's like very much excellent portrayal of a vampiress. Uh, feels. Feels kind of fitting that we should go to. I would say I I I'd go on record to say that I think this is one of the. If I was doing a top ten movies of vampires, Daughters of Darkness would be on it. I think it would maybe be towards the ten end, but I think it takes such a unique 
position from the outset um, and, and it's handled in such a way which feels different from what the contemporaries in other countries were doing I was actually very surprised to see this appear on your list because um, most, most of my Americans uh, thus far have picked American movies um, that the list have turned in so it's very unusual to see something from the Europe's appear uh, let alone the fact that you picked two on your list which I'm very proud of Bo I like to think it's a small part of me has gone out with yeah. you uh, I'm a global citizen, man. I'm not a <laughs> national. Child of the world. Child of the yeah. world. Bo Ransdell. Right. I go you. where the quality is. <laughs> so, Daughters of Darkness, directed by Harry Kumel. Um, stars a lot of people whose names I will butcher. Uh, Delphine Sirig, John Carlin, Danielle Umlet, and uh, Andre Rowe. Uh, synopsis. A newlywed couple are passing through a vacation resort. They cross paths with a mysteriously striking beautiful countess and her aide. Um, yeah, this one... Right, why did this one... Because I talk loads now, I give you, now I've stolen all your points. Why did this one appear on your list, Bo? Uh, because it is the movie Ridley Scott ripped off <laughs> to make The Hunger. <laughs> Which is admittedly more stylish, but I don't know that it's better. Uh, I would um, agree with that. I would agree with that, actually. 100%. Uh, Daughters of Darkness was the anti, well, like, Hammer, Ingrid Pitt yeah. vampire film. And it is incredibly somber. There is a loneliness to this movie that I really, really like. Um, I think the performance, uh, especially from uh, Delphine Seyrig, uh, Amanda Seyfried, maybe. Um, <laughs> Countess Bathory, which yeah. they're not really, they're not. <laughs> Bathory. <laughs> yeah, as soon as we meet her, we're like, wait one second. But that's an intro. Elizabeth Bathory, the first vampiress. Wait one second, I think she might be a vampire. Right, like there's a great scene where the uh, concierge at the front desk is like, I worked here like 20 years ago <laughs> and somebody named Countess Bettori came through and looked just like you. And she's like, huh, that's interesting. How about you shut the fuck up? <laughs> um, I'm trying to make a play on this chick over here. Um <laughs> But it is like it, it is quintessential '70s vampire movie in that it's like pretty ladies and there's the hint of lesbianism, uh, which '70s vampire movies are just ate up with. Yeah. Um, and there's also a like there there's a, a more serious tone to it than all of that though, mm -hmm. and it's it's very much about this space between characters in the film. Like you have the newlywed couple that is uh, freshly married, but they're still learning things about one another. Mm -hmm. And some of those things aren't necessarily great, you know, uh, like uh, the, the, the young blonde uh, discovers that her new husband is kind of fascinated by crime scenes and, and uh, the images of violence mm -hmm. around that. And, and it disturbs her. And meanwhile, you have the other couple of uh, uh, the Countess and uh, Yona. Um, and like 
there's some jealousy because the Countess now has uh, identified Valerie as like I'm gonna I'm gonna bring her into the fold because we need some new blood and mm-hmm. but she's jealous or you know her her companion is jealous but also kind of just tired of being alive yeah and I mean there's just all this interesting stuff going on and none of it like there's no scene that's particularly explosive it's all done with this just kind of deliberate seriousness of tone i mean it's it there are moments that are kind of funny and 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 the uh the the character of the countess is just fascinating like the way that she blows up the vampire mythos yeah even as she's talking about it and and describing the kind of loneliness of it It, it's fantastic man i love this movie yeah i think um i remember when kiss of the damned came out 2013 i want to say I remember, like, just going, like, lavishing huge amount of praise on that movie and um, being kind of questioned by by fellow podcasters at the time as to why I loved it so much. And I was like, this is the closest, uh, you know, a modern horror vampire movie has got to Daughters of Darkness that I've ever seen. It just captured that kind of, that that European, very sombre tone about vampires and how, like... The, the idea, the allure of being immortal isn't all that it's cracked up to and people handle it in different ways and how that how that has an effect on the psyche. And it's something that's been flirted with with more vampire movies recently. When you watch something like Byzantium, for example, or Only Lovers Left Alive, um, and you see that there is a through line, I think, back to Daughters of Darkness and the way it handled it, because it was just so against cast for vampire movies to be shown or put forward with with that sort of weight and not just being used as like a cheap gimmick to to offer some sort of weird titillation or or horror uh, to to cinema patrons and i think that's i think that's wonderful about the movie um i think what i love about it is how much is how well it holds up it is beautifully shot um yeah it's a a cool belgian french production um, and the, their cinema, um, specifically of the seventies, is just that that European style of the seventies, where everything is just that every shot is like a painting, um, and it's, it's a beautiful movie to look at. And I think it's really well acted. It's just really, really interesting yeah. story. Very well acted, um, and it has that kind of somber tone that just like lies on it. Um, the ultimate demise of Countess Battery is pretty fucking wonderful as well because all that impaled surprisingly brutal <laughs> for like this a, movie <laughs> like car crash impaled on a spike and then burned to death <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's a real like double tap yeah it's fucking uh, amazing for a vampire yeah it's it's incredible and in watching it again because it had been a, a while since I'd seen it um, but I'd always loved the movie. I mean, I'm, I, it wasn't a revelation that it was fantastic. But mm-hmm. uh, watching it again, I, I was kind of struck by the same thing of just like this is gorgeous and it it feels more modern yeah. almost than a lot of the movies on this list. It, like it could have been made a few years ago. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So so let's let's dip back. You said that you'd watched a few uh, Jally. I did say that, yes. For this, you did say that. Words which I still don't believe came out your mouth. Uh, and I'm sampling that bit where you said it, and I'm just going to play it to myself whenever I feel down. 
<laughs> Make it like uh, the text tone or whatever. <laughs> so, like, every time you text me about Duncan and Bull recordings, I'll just be like that. Yeah, I've been watching some Jally and I'm like, oh, those been watching Jally. <laughs> right. um, so, this one is the directorial debut of a guy who has a bit of a storied career in Italian cinema. Uh, this was his first movie, he co wrote it. Um, this is director Aldo Lado's Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Um, from 71 so this is like I, I said to you we'd had a few Jally movies had come out since about the s- I mean they were already kind of flirting with with the tone and style as early as like 63, 64 um, Mario Bava puts his, his stake in the ground about 1966, 67 he's like this is my new one this is Blood and Black Lace this is Hyper stylized color, murder mystery, black glove killer, blah 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 blah. This is what I'm doing, and then it kind of trundles on. A lot of Italian directors have a little shot at it, but Bava is clearly the best by head and shoulders. Uh, right through, we get people like uh, Fulci starting to experiment with it, and then we get Argento comes out with Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He becomes a rock star overnight in Italy, um, internationally known. For Burden, Burden of Crystal Plumage, which was something Mario Bava never really did get. He never got that critical acclaim abroad that Argento got pretty much from the start. Um, and then we get all these Jallo movies that start coming out uh, with different styles and different tones, but all very much at the beginning feeling like these pulp novels that you would pick up these murder mysteries, these Agatha Christie crimes almost um, committed to screen, but with a slightly darker tone, which is what ultimately kind of levitates them towards a horror category as opposed to just being a crime thriller which a lot of Jallos admit, admittedly are and you could make that case that Short Night of the Glass Dolls is as well if it wasn't for that the kind of last five minutes of the movie which really really take a turn um, oh it's so fucking good Duncan the, <laughs> the fucking balls on this guy the ball. fucking balls on this guy <laughs> this movie stars Ingrid Thulin uh, and genre mainstay uh, Jean Sorel um, who has and I've said it before we did a show pretty much that show which had uh, um, was that the one with Bird with the Crystal yeah I, no it was the one that we did with uh, women and a lizard in a woman's skin uh, I think I nicknamed like staring into the eyes of Sorel because he has the dreamiest dreamy eyes ever like you see them you're just like that I could get lost in those eyes um, but the synopsis for this Murder one for you yes <laughs> all right <laughs> burn them all horribly okay I will do what thou commands they must all pay everything makes sense now <laughs> synopsis for this one an American journalist in Prague searches for his girlfriend who has suddenly disappeared terrible synopsis <laughs> terrible synopsis because it misses out one of the key selling points to this movie and I was watching this going why is this movie never be it has almost been remade I think there was a movie called Awake um, which takes a similar premise but slightly different uh, from a couple of years ago but this movie is crying out to me for a remake it so needs a remake <laughs> like I would love to see 
this it would never work because they changed the ending but right right that's why it would be fucked up it would be the vanishing to me that's exactly they would change it like they changed the end of the vanishing um, in the remake because that's how they do things but this movie is super fucking strong I mean like coming back to this one this is one that I am familiar with and that I had seen it many moons ago um, and I had the Blu-ray because 88 films are putting out this Italian collection where like every month they're releasing two um, of, of the, the the country's kind of mainstay movies mostly by the, the great directors of the, the kind of 60s, 70s and 80s and, but it covers everything so it's not just Jallo we have the Italian crime thrillers that came out at the time we we have some of the sci-fi nonsense that they were putting out some of the blatant Jaws rip-offs which were a big thing in Italy for quite a while or the Exorcist rip-offs which were a big th- anything that has the word rip-off in it Italy was doing it and doing it well um, but this one's back to your kind of we're just doing a a, a a Jallo style movie here and the premise involves a dead or a SIBO, uh, a dead American journalist who is on the slab about to, to get an autopsy but he's been drugged um, in that he appears to be dead but he's still actually alive and the clock is ticking down to his inevitable autopsy and he is trying to play through and solve the crime that led him to this point. It's a fucking amazing premise. You'd never seen this movie before, so let me know what you made of Short Night at the Glass Dolls. Okay, so this was the beginning of my marathon. Mm-hmm. And what a way to start, Duncan. <laughs> this may be the movie that is single-handedly responsible for turning me around. Yes! Uh, uh, I think this movie is fucking great. Um, like you said, the initial premise of like, why can't they hear me? Why can't I move? What happened to me? And like, it, you know, that's the framework for the, the telling of this story, which, you know, kind of the, a, a typical, uh, Giallo sort of plot line of, Hey, somebody, uh, went missing. This guy's looking for, it uncovers this larger plot. And then Duncan, here's what happens. <laughs> now I'm gonna I'm gonna kick out here, ladies and gents, I, to, to under to highlight how good I think this movie is um, in the context of how the story is told. I I feel we need to spoil it, right? So if you have never seen Short Night of the Glass Dolls, I implore you go and watch the Short Night of the Glass Dolls and then come back. I'm going to definitely in the description for this show. I will put in exactly the time code for where we are starting now to the point where we finish talking about it and we will not mention it again when we whittle down the titles. We'll not mention the ending again, but we, ha- we have to talk about this. But I need to speak to someone about it. Yeah, we, we got to talk about what, where this movie goes because it's what makes it special. Like, the whole thing would have been good. Then the ending happens <laughs> and it turns out that all of this is some crazy demon cult that is feasting on the young to keep themselves like alive and to to keep their deity satisfied and so they whip a like this drug this potion on the dude that's kind of a serpent in the rainbow thing mm-hmm. where he's alive uh and can feel everything and can think but he can't move it's this incredible paralytic and then he realizes that 
all these people that he saw in this devil cult meeting are like the the attending surgeon that's doing his uh, autopsy which is being witnessed by a gallery by the way you know because you like to keep that stuff open to the public <laughs> well I, I, they're, they're doing it i think it's in a medical school as well but in yeah, the gallery it's all the up the very top it's the it's the people that are right. all these people that are involved with the cult who are overseeing his autopsy yeah. just to make sure they go through with it and then there's uh what was she kind of his assistant or um anyway but uh she's watching this as well which again i don't know why you would go to the autopsy of somebody you knew but <laughs> all right and so you see this last moment where our hero's hand starts to twitch and it's like god damn at the last minute here he is on the slab on the on the table in the theater as he's about to be cut open and he's gonna he's gonna get his wits about him he's gonna be able to move his arm he's gonna his hand starts twitching is the thing as well his hand starts moving his heart starts beating and we're like yes Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> like thank God. At the nick of time, this is where they defuse the bomb with one second to go. Exactly. Only what happens is the hand is kind of hidden from the audience because it's his right hand and it's his left side that's facing the audience. The doctor, who's one of the devil folk and has some pretty bitching glasses, <laughs> um, just holds his hand down so that nobody sees it and jams a scalpel into his fucking aorta. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And and the woman who knows him in the gallery suddenly starts screaming, did she know he was alive? Is she just horrified by the fact that she's seen someone cut into this guy she knew? Mm -hmm. Don't know. Doesn't matter. That's just how the movie ends. And Short Knife, the glass doll, (laughs) fucking, like, there are movies that stick the landing. (laughs) And then there are movies where the landing is <laughs> is a bomb drop. It's you know, fucking the, incredible ending. It's so like because I watched it by I, like I knew the thing is I knew what the ending was because I'd seen it before, and like but I was for some reason like it's the it's the Wicker Man thing for me. I've said many times on the show. Every time I watch the Wicker Man, I know I know Edward Woodward dies at the end of that movie, but I always kind of hope. Like every time I watch it, I kind of hope that someone's going to appear just at the end and save him, and it never fucking happens. And it was the same with this movie. I was like, that. I'm sure he dies at the end of this, and I'm like, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I've misremembered this movie. That's what it is. Because look, he's his heart's starting to beat in his hands. He's going to save at the end of this day. It must be thinking about a different child. Oh fuck me. All right. Oh sorry. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize. Oh, 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 the movie's just told me to fuck myself in the most awesome way. Let me buy you a beer, director of this movie. That it's really unfortunate that the movie doesn't end with a guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> like aorta stab, shriek, shriek of terror, and. It, it like it's a rock and like the whole movie's good. Don't get me wrong. Like the it's worth the trip. Yeah. But that ending is just a a wonderful sucker punch yeah. of I you know you just you've been with this guy the whole movie. He's narrating the whole story. 
and the movie doesn't end when he dies. Uh, anyway, it's it's fantastic. Like seeing the hand go still after the heart stab is yeah. pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, that movie rocks. Yeah, first, first, this is what I'm saying though. First outing for this guy, the fucking balls bow. <laughs> the fucking balls on that guy to be like, you know what? The hero dies horribly in front of us. Yeah. Like, and almost makes it. Like almost it, makes it. Yeah, almost gets away. That's that's what I think. The, the fact that we, his memory finally catches up, and we know we can see. And uh, like one of the biggest kicking the dicks of this movie is the fact that he is lying on his back, and he can see the group of people almost openly mocking the fact that he's paralyzed on the table. Oh yeah. Yeah, and you kind of think, well, he's going to get out of this, and then he's going to show them what for, um, and no no such luck <laughs> so, nope. so it's a fucking great movie once again though shot beautifully acted great mm-hmm. I love Jean Sorel in this movie I love his kind of the, the, I love the fact that we jump through these different periods um, and him trying to construct the mystery behind it and the fact that we ju- just take this kind of wicked once again like Italian cinema was very much what do, what were they doing in America right we're doing it now uh, and you get that Roman Polanski sort of Rosemary's Baby like kind of cultish devil introduction thing um, appears like in this movie because they wanted to do that <laughs> just write it in why not um, yeah it works it made wonderful. as much sense as anything else that was going on in the movie and then yeah. all of a sudden it's awesome yeah so, <laughs> so yeah that's the, the the short night of the glass doll which means we only have one movie left as we've mentioned a lot of the word jallo and jally and people will be sick of it um so here's the man that kind of originated it and then tried to kill it <laughs> like in this movie i kind of love this movie just is like in a baseline just because Bay of Blood or as it's known in America Twitch of the Death Nerve which better is, title yeah Twitch of the Death Nerve is what Mario Bava actually wanted to call it in America because in America they wanted to name it um, The Last House on the Left Part 2 even oh, no. though it came out before Last House on the Left which you would think is insane but then when you see the numbering of the zombie movies um, in Italy as well they're all over the fucking place um, and that's just how they do things in Italy they're just like ah, just like lump it in there but yeah it was it was going to be called Last House on the Left Part 2 which is stupid um, so he he to block that suggested Twitch of the Death Nerve um, which is a fucking bitching name uh, I also think it's because oh, wow. <laughs> that's what I mean if ever there was a guitar solo needed like when a, when a phrase is uttered or a movie title is that one because um, it's fucking amazing uh, rumoured this movie has more titles than any other movie in, in the history of cinema like more alternative titles and that is mostly down to the fact that it, like almost every territory it got a different name but I think it's known by about four different names in the states because they released it ran it and if it didn't do well they changed the name and then put on another grindhouse billing under a different name where people would be like I think I've have I seen no it's a different name Susan it's a different name <laughs> we've not seen this one. but are you sure did the kids not know up Susan um, you know like literally because that's what they did in America they were just like Roger Corman was terrible for this uh, like if, did it not work under this name right call it this but what do you mean there isn't a skin deep in this one call it skin deep like so, right and, right and, like, I remember this wheelchair I remember the wheelchair. This is the same movie. No, no, it's a different name. It's a different name. Um, they would not lie to us. Not the cinema going public. Um, no. So, yeah, so this one, um, 
Mario Bava kind of saw the writing on the wall, funnily enough. Um, this is not the, the last Jallo that the, the great man would make, but he made two in the previous year, which we've already covered uh, with Ricky. We did... Um, uh, oh, fucking, I forgot the Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Um... And the August one, I can't remember what the name of that one is now. My brain is fried from doing so many fucking movies. Um, Five Dolls for an August Moon, I think, is the name of it. But he did those ones. One was pretty good. The other one was kind of mediocre. And so he comes out with Bay of Blood, um, which goes down in infamy as a movie which a lot of people, a lot of historians now look back to say, this is where slasher films are birthed. Um, I would argue it's more prevalent in Torso, which comes two years after this. Torso, certainly in the second half of the movie, is the slasher movie that everyone knows and loves. Um, but he kind of starts doing things. It also helps that uh, Sean Cunningham steals <laughs> like killings from this one for both Friday the 13th and part two. Um, Friday the 13th, he just, you know... Almost shot for shot, Bo. Uh, and the fact that this movie is set round, like, a, a lake, um, where all the murders take place, and then Friday the 13th did the same, although we may be giving Bay of Blood a bit too much credit for that one. Um, I was surprised to see this one on your list. Very surprised to see this Why one. Why is that, sir? Because we've never spoke about this movie, and I've known you for a long, long time, sir. I've known you for... It'll almost be four years like, that we've known each other, and we've spoke about a lot of movies. We spoke about Bava before, but I we've never spoke about Bay of Blood. Uh, well, Bay of Blood is awesome. Um, it, it's real dumb, uh, which <laughs> <Yes>. I like. <laughs> um, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> it's like it's all about a stupid real estate thing. Yeah. Which who cares? Um, that's not the point of Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood is all about let, let's kill some folks and let's do it in some fun ways. And then at the end of it, uh, then, I don't know, some will blow up maybe. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, the, it's the Bava thing. Like, I, I think some people don't realize that Mario Bava, for all the, the movies that he made that were very like super serious, the guy had a wicked sense of humor. And he believed very, very strongly that horror cinema in particular, which this is a horror movie, some of the movies that he made were kind of, you know, that kind of crime thriller thing are not horror movies, but he believed that if you have scared the audience, that the audience needs to leave feeling relieved. You know, they have to they have to leave that cinema with, you know, a sense of oh, it's only a movie. And that he, he did that in, like, the original Italian cut of um, Black Sabbath shows you... Uh, <laughs> shows you um, Bella Lugosi riding away on a horse in America, like cackling as tree branches that all fly past him. That's because the Americans changed it in the European cut, the camera pans out, and you see that he's on a gurney being pushed by people as people run with trees around them, and it's you see behind the camera, and it's only a movie. It's only a movie. And that's what the end of Bay of Blood is. It's a very tongue-in-cheek wink at the audience that it's only a movie. Um, but it's right. goofy as balls, and I love it. Yeah, and, you know, uh, to your point earlier about uh, people very rightfully say a lot of the slasher film certainly has its roots here. Mm -hmm. uh, you may be right that Torso puts a finer point on it, but like the group of teenagers, the lake, the the 
elaborate deaths. Now, all of that had existed in other movies before, but it's it sort of combining them all here. And it almost feels like the storyline about like who's doing the murders and all that stuff is such a backseat to just a bunch of people running around being scared. And, um, and that's uh, like, I'm not uh, criticizing the movie for that. It, it's, it's very moody. It, it, it's really fun. Uh, it's snappy. Like people die a lot. And also like there are all the reveal scenes, uh, by which I mean when a character walks into a room, it's like, Oh my God, dead bodies <laughs> again, something that translated to the slasher film. Uh, directly and yeah it's uh, you know it's interesting as a unhistorical footnote uh, as a film uh, it's also interesting because it's just kind of this big fun goofy movie that sort of delights in in the very opening scene as as we discussed yeah and saying oh this is the typical giallo now let me show you how it's not you yeah, know, like the the pan up where it's like, oh, I see the leather gloves, and in the typical Jello, well, that's where the scene cuts. Yeah, you don't see the face because that's the reveal. That's the reveal you get at the end of the movie, and it does. Right. It pans up and shows you the killer, and then not only does it show you the killer, that killer then dies. <laughs> you're like, right, and what the fuck? Five minutes yeah. into the movie, you're like, what? <laughs> it's it, it's the all bets are off opening mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's fantastic and in a weird way i ripped it off in lost after dark um <laughs> so uh, yeah it, it's you know it, it it like as a movie it was influential on me because you can't watch it because there were so many crazy ideas just being thrown at the screen mm -hmm. in bay of blood or twitch of the death nerf let's just agree to call it twitch of the death nerf yeah um <laughs> There are so many crazy ideas kind of being thrown at you as a viewer that you can't help but for a couple of them to be like, well, that was awesome, and that was awesome too. And maybe I'm not so crazy about this storyline over here, but then like, let's look at this scene over here where there's a big pile of bodies on a bed, uh, and that's pretty rocking. So, yeah, it's a, it's a super fun movie, and like more so than just considering a giallo, I, I've always looked at it as... Uh, a proto slasher film and and have always approached it that way but because i've been watching so much uh of the jelly stuff watching it again gave me a much greater appreciation for bava giving it the finger yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah but yeah, I, I think he's i think he sometimes is he's unfairly it's unfairly forgotten how how pioneering a filmmaker he was. Uh, I saw this great documentary once that said, had Mario Bava been... Had Mario Bava managed to convert his movie career, he did try going to America and all the rest, but he didn't speak any English at all, so he just didn't like it and he refused to go back. But had he went over there, people would speak about him with the same fondness that they speak about directors like Hitchcock, just because he was so ahead of his time. Like, so ahead of his time. He was pioneering film techniques on every single movie um, and then given those techniques he was working on all his he was working on Argento movies that that beautiful underwater scene that you see in um, Inferno which is it's one of these one of the great set pieces in Argento cinema um, was was one of the last things that Mario Bava worked on so like before he died um, 
he was just he was heavily involved with it. And a really funny story that comes out the trivia that uh, Argento loved the movie so much that he had a friend who was a projectionist steal the print of the film during its first run in Italy. The theatre ended up showing Blood Brides to replace the stolen print for the remainder of the film's run, um, which was about a week and a half. But Argento to this day still possesses the print. <laughs> so he's like, steal me the print! I must have this movie. Because <laughs> back then you couldn't just buy a Blu-ray. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's just like, steal me this. Um, which, which I kind of love it. Uh, Christopher Lee, when he first saw the movie, was so disgusted at the level of violence he left the theatre in protest. Yeah, but I am appalled by this. I I will leave here on a on a on a wing of self righteousness that I am above this man. Now let me go and star in the howling too. Your sister is a werewolf. Right. Well, you know I won't speak in Prince of Darkness. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, don't be a jerk, but uh, also uh, I get it. You know, he's. He's an old man, you know. This movie, this movie don't care about what old men think about it. Yeah. This movie's coming. <laughs> this movie's coming. It's like, you know what? We're gonna kill Giallo in the first scene. Yeah, we're gonna kill uh, Giallo in the first scene. One year after it's become popular. Right. I, like, I could be making a whole lot of scratch of this, but Mario Bava, ultimate hipster. <laughs> I did it before it was killed. Uh huh. And now that it's cool, I don't like it. Yeah. Now I will drink my cappuccino, which is Italian, so I can drink it. Not appropriated by you lousy Americans. Um, yes, this also was the second ever film in America rated V for violence. So there we go. Hmm. <laughs> like, all right. So we're just shoving that against there. I don't think it's all that violent. Maybe I'm desensitized. Probably for the time it was. I, you know, it does get, like, uh, you know, the spear through the back between the two people is pretty... It's pretty gruesome. Yeah, yeah, just 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 a bit, just a bit. So yeah, that's that's our last movie, Bait of Blood. Now, all right, AKA Twitch of the Death Nerve. Now me, Bo, me and Bo both need to take a break. We need to compose ourselves, and then we will come back for either a harmonious discussion of agreement, a rigorous debate, or fucking out and out name calling and battle. I don't know where. I genuinely don't know where this is going to go. I thought. I had my two picked until yesterday, and I now have about three movies that I could comfortably put into the second position. So I'm I'm in the same boat. Uh, this should be interesting because I think it's going to be more of a a mutual decision on what deserves it. I think I think that's exactly what the listeners are going to get. But everyone needs a break just now. You're going to hear a song that I'm going to pick to play in the middle here that you're going to enjoy. It will alleviate some of the tension unless I pick something really tense. Who knows? I'm a bit of a dick that way. Uh, but when me and Bo return, we're going to whittle this down to two movies to represent 1971 in the podcast Under the Stairs. Knows Arc Rules, Summer, Top 10 series looking at 1970s horror. Myself and Bo will be coming right back right after this. This is the song Duncan plays to alleviate the tension. <laughs> So glad I didn't hit stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm hitting stop now, though. Hello. You've heard of honest movie trailers, right? This is an honest podcast promo. I'm not going to fill it with sound effects and explosions and quotes from movies and all that kind of stuff. 
because hey i wouldn't want to build up your hopes on the production values of what you might actually get if you download our silly little podcast instead i'm just going to put in a highly inappropriate in joke that you won't get unless you listen to the show the little part of horrors the best idea since premarital sex on halloween like i said pussy's back on the table find us on simplysyndicated.com and on itunes if you dare Welcome back. So, another year, 10 movies discussed. 
And it's time, it's time to carry two, the two victorious on the shoulders, um, like great champions, forward to that inevitable round table at the very end of this top ten run of shows. Now, Bo, what I have done in the previous episode, the, the easiest way I saw to tackle this was to remove the ones that I feel are, are, are you know, are worthy of the top ten list, but not worthy of our time when we are whittling it down to the two. And whatever's left, we will pick, if we agree, the obvious first movie, and then we will see if we can uh, argue our cases out to get a second one. Um, so... Uh, I will go first. I will say that I am happy to say that uh, the house that drip blood come off the list unless you are naysaying that. Nope. I, I think uh, it's great. Doesn't belong in the top two. Cool. Right. Um, do you want to go now? Do you, have yeah, a, I, do you have a proposition? I do. I think let's scare Jessica to death, as we discussed. Very good. Not top two. I agree. That one is now off the list boy it is off the list um it's getting difficult now um as much as i loved it and it was the first time i saw it i'm saying willard's not top two either mm. do you disagree if you disagree we can hold on to it Let, uh, let's hang on to it for another minute let me yeah. let me i i think there are other can't can't, he can't help but see that all my movies are getting discounted here that's quite interesting <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think it's obvious where we're headed <laughs> right, what, 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 right, uh, right um right what, what would you recommend instead of will I, I would say twins of evil just like another one of mine that's fine well cool. I, I, <laughs> I think there's another film on this list that is somewhat similar but i think more deserving of consideration I would agree with that, right? We'll take that one off the list. Um, I don't know if I want to live in a world where Dr. Fives isn't in consideration. I, I know, I know what you mean. Um, but I kind of feel like it could go. But I wanted Chaba. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. It's difficult. It is. Uh, it is. Uh don't like this anymore this game is no longer fun i'm canceling the shows bo <laughs> all Fucking right canceled. all right i'll tell you what <sighs> let me let me offer one up all oh, right right you go for it all right i'm i would i would say bay of blood is awfully influential it's awfully fun there are other gialli on this list i would I would argue for before that. Yeah, I, I don't want to be in a position where two jelly go through from this this round. I'm, I'm not down with that. I kind of like the idea of the movies going through really represent different things. Yeah, which the previous episode showed. So I'm kind of kind of want to keep that going. So right, yeah, I will agree. Bear blood off the list, off that list. Um. Ooh, right now it's getting interesting. Interesting up in this bitch. Um, so we now have one, two, three, four, five movies. I feel more comfortable with the five. How do how do we, we get? I I count six. What did I? How do? Uh, so we should have the dumb. Uh, the, 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 all right, le, all right. Let's talk. Let's talk. Willard and Abominable Doctor Fives. Yeah. I one two no we do have six you are right so yeah right so let's talk Willard and Fives right 
vibes I think is inventive. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's quirky and fun, but I actually think it's it's kind of ballsy in the way it ends. I think that that really works for it. I like it because it plays Vincent Price almost against typecast by doing things different with what that actor would generally do in a movie. I think that's pretty cool. I like that it's kind of vicious when it needs to be. Some of the deaths, albeit are quite comical to look at, are still fairly gnarly. Um, and I actually think it's a beautiful looking movie. I think it's stunningly filmed. I would say Willard um, is one that has a really interesting tone that I don't think matches up with any other movie on the list for 1971 and that has this very kind of quirky you'd almost describe it as indie comedy now <laughs> a sort of vibe going on about it the way it's presented um, and I think the central performance I would say and you may disagree with this one. Bruce Davison's performance is better than Vincent Price's performance as Fibes. Um, I do agree with that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so I think the central performance is much better. Um, plus, it's the movie that's not like the others on this list. Like, Fibes is a movie which kind of feels in keeping with the sort of Vincent Price movies you would get, except the turn on it and twist it and make Price the villain that is will ultimately get away with what he wants by kind of making him sympathetic, kind of quasi-sympathetic, but not really going for it. Um, In the case of Willard, Willard is a character that I genuinely feel sorry for. Um, All the way through this movie, and even at the end, where he kind of fucks himself over by trying to take down Ben. Never try and take down Ben. Never take down Ben. Um, That I kind of... I don't know. What, what do you think? I, what, what, what am I saying that you're thinking or you're hearing that you would disagree with, uh, go further with, or, or or maybe try and try and clear up clear up the matter a bit more for me, Bo? All right. So here's my proposition, at least for right. the argument before us right now. Mm-hmm. We lose fives. Right. We keep Willard. Mm-hmm. And we lose. Here, because here's part two of my thinking. <laughs> We've got two Jolly on the list. We do, I, and the funny I, thing is, I think I think one is better than the other. I but I think, I think. Right, it's uncomfortable. All right, let me I'll, I'll, let me let me give you my proposition. <laughs> let, let, let me just give you my proposition. Lose vibes, keep Willard. Lose Cat and Nine Tails. I knew you were going to say that, right? Um, yeah, I kind of feel like we've got one Argento already on the list, and this, like, because for those who don't know, who didn't check out the previous episode, Bird with a Crystal Plumage, one with a motherfucking bullet for 1970, and Crystal Plumage is better than Cat and Nine Tails. Um, so, I mean, I've got the superior Argento Jally at the moment. This one is a step back. And against Short Night of the Glass Dolls, which is not shot as well as Cat and Nine Tails, um, but it does have a story unlike anything we are likely to see. <laughs> um, and that is your. Yeah, right, so Cat and Nine Tails is out, Fibes is out, which leaves us with, if you're keeping count, ladies and gents, we now have four movies. We have The Devils, we have Willard. 
we have Daughters of Darkness and Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Right, do we have an agreement on what our number one pick would be? I think we're we both saying the Devils. Yeah, uh, the Devils is rock solid, the best movie of 1971. I would agree with you there, 100%. I think it is a tour de force of cinema, um, hugely influential, um, like taboo. Almost taboo is not the word that that it, taboo is one of those words which people use as a bit of a taboo. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it's like beyond that. I like I like <laughs> heretical uh, as yes. a description because yeah. it is. It's how I call my. It's how I describe my sexual. Um, my I sexual have, acts. I have a heretical, heretical sexual prowess appetite yeah appetite oh. appetite well all right yeah. fair enough i can see where that i was thinking front to god <laughs> i was thinking more like like <laughs> if if your lovely wife was asked like what's what's duncan like in bed and her response was heretical yeah yeah i i don't know what that would mean but i would be some intrigued. some some some, yeah, some some uh old lady in the back drop would faint after hearing that oh <laughs> it's like she's just be like oh all a fluster oh <laughs> my old British lady. It's really, really good. Uh, right, so the Devils is locked in as number right. one, which means... So, right, we're talking we, number two. Yeah, Willard, Daughters of Darkness, or Short Night of the Glass Doll. And I feel like, strangely, Willard and Short Night of the Glass Doll are both Dark Horse candidates here. I agree. This was what this is where the thing flew up to me, because I had my two picks comfortably moving into this and I knew as soon as you put the list out to me I knew pretty much straight away from the list that you sent to me the two that I would like to see go through are The Devils and Daughters of Darkness and then I watched Willard for the first time I was like actually this is a really good movie and I think it's fitting for the top four I do think it's fitting for the top four and I watched Short Night of the Glass Dolls yesterday as well and I was like you're just not going to see an ending like that anywhere but does the end justify the means both? Yeah. Does the last five minutes of that movie make oh. up for the fact that there there is there is a good fifteen minutes in the movie where it doesn't completely meander, but it does slow down pace. It doesn't maintain full focus, and you could probably chop ten minutes out of the movie, and it wouldn't detrimentally affect anything in it. Um, that being said, though, I love the the premise of it. I love the the kind of the mystery aspect, the jumping back through the memories, the cut sequences back into modern time where they're they're trying to use many different, you know, kind of scientific techniques to find out why the body isn't behaving like a dead body. And then the false hope that you have in the last two minutes of that movie almost, to me, gives it a through. Uh, you know, just because, I, like I say, you, I, I, I challenge anyone to watch this movie and not just be like, oh, when the movie finishes, it, does, it knocks the wind from you. It's, it's incredible. Um, and we can't mention what happens at the end of the movie. Because um, I said we wouldn't. Uh, that but being it's said, that good. I mean, it is. That is it really is that good because it's... it's that good an ending. Because it's, you just haven't seen it before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You just haven't seen an ending like that before. Um, which brings us down to... Uh, yeah, I think it, it, the question is, do either of these movies unseat Daughters of Darkness? Because my heart is Devil's da Daughters of Darkness. Yeah. I I would have said Willard would have been my third. Uh, but but the, the fucking balls. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fucking balls. And, and right, like I, I, I could only, you know what? I, I think 
I think both of us have had uh, have found new loves. Have yeah. uh, have along this journey, Duncan. <laughs> the path that we have taken through 1971. We have those final thoughts. We we have had uh, <laughs> films that that felt familiar to us, surprise us in new ways, uh, both both good and bad sometimes. And and in both cases, we've had uh, a, a new film in our lives, and and really speak to us in a, in a special way that only truly great films can. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, the right decision is the devil's most certainly, and yeah. and almost as certainly, uh, Daughters of Darkness, which is uh, like uh, again watching it as we discussed. That movie could have been made last year, and, yeah. and it would be just as effective and just as quality. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I th- that's I right. Think yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. Now that I look at yes. it, that 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 looks good to me. That uh, yeah, that was the. To be honest, that's where I was. That's where I opted for before I sat down to pick off the last ones from the list yesterday. Um, I was very much there. That was how I, that was what my gut was telling me. Um, and yeah, I think I think we're. I would not feel any shame or guilt at all. I would feel fairly confident that I could argue with anyone who disagrees that the the two best from this year are um, Daughters of Darkness and the Devils. I think yeah. I think I, yeah. I'm feeling I'm feeling comfortable now, Bo. I'm feeling like some of the pressure's off. Um, I would say that definitely, if you've never seen Willard like me, please do yourself a favour, check out that movie. And Short and... Night of the Glass Dolls, holy cow. <laughs> Turns out that's a good movie. Man, um, that movie is... I'll tell you what, it changed my life. That's a movie that turned bow. It turned bow. And had I known this, had I known, had I known this, I would have done this years ago. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think... I'm feeling good, Bo. I'm feeling good. You feel yeah. good? I, I feel great about this. I think both of those movies are are not just great for that year. Both of those movies can hang with top ten of the 70s. Those are I agree. both exceptional films. I I'm agree. pointing sternly <laughs> at my computer screen, looking at this <laughs> list like... The Devils and Daughters of Darkness, I will take those two movies up against any pair of movies from any year and feel good about doing Bold statement, Bo, but I like bold statements Man, on this show. That's what we're here for on this series. The Devils ain't nothing to fuck with, Duncan. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, you, which is which were, were the original lyrics to the classic Wu Tang song? It was, um, it was. But they, they had to change it because no one got it. I mean, I know we're looking down the road and whatnot, but you look at something like The Exorcist against the Devils. Mm, that's no. that's that's, an intri- that's a spicy meatball, isn't it? That's a conversation. It is a conversation, one that we will get into in the fullness of time. That is a, that is a, a that is assuming the Exorcist makes it through, Bo, because we're in the. Like, we're Oof, making assumptions. Yeah. I, like, I don't want to be in a world where it doesn't make it through, but you know, we're we're in the scenarios here now. On this same Had list, you put down what? Have you put down an argument as strong as the Devils for Willard? There's a very good chance Willard would have went through. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, like and- I, I, I like to hear where people come in on these things, and 
like to me, I, I was I was like that when I watched the short night of the glass dolls. I was like that. This is a fucking exceptional end to a movie. I don't know where it's going to land with Bo. And then to hear that you would put that among some of the picks that you were like, yeah, that for this decade, here's my top five. And then the fact that you know we came to it, you were like that. Well, no, I'd put short night of the glass doll above ostensibly two of your other picks. Yeah, I think I was wrong. Speaks volumes to how how crazy these lists are going to get because people go for the ones that they know and I have curveballs all the way through all my lists because I didn't pick the really popular ones. I went for the ones that I was like, I remember watching that movie and thinking it was bitching. Um, yeah. And there's going to be a lot more of them as time goes on, Bo. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I Like on this same list, I have uh, the list for 73 and that is, <laughs> that, oh, horse trading is um, going to be done there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it before we go before I, I'll let you plug your shows and uh, <laughs> head out to close out this show though uh, which did run longer than I expected um, sorry in fairness still not as long as us talking about two episodes of Twin Peaks so. right right lean <laughs> and mean and we talked about ten <laughs> movies this is real good for us <laughs> ten movies then debated them down um, one of my favourite bits of trivia about the devils and I knew it was going to be our number one pick so I kept it to the end because I wanted to kind of close in this one uh, this is one that was listed on IMDb which I think is pretty fucking amazing I'm just utterly soul destroyed that there's no way to see it when critic Alexander Walker published an unfavourable review in, of the film in the evening standard he and Ken Russell were invited for a debate on a BBC talk show where the Russell confronted Walker and alleged inaccuracies in his writing. Unfortunately, the footage has been lost and stories about what happened differ violently, Bo. However, both agree that the argument got so heated that Russell folded his copy of the newspaper and then, <laughs> and then continuously hit Walker over the head with it. <laughs> on that we can agree. <laughs> um, fantastic! That's so oh, good. Shaming, I love it. I love it. Uh, right, Bo, you have many shows. You run a network. People have heard of them before. People know where to check them out before. But yeah. there might be new people listening, and they, and the ones that are listening have listened to two and a half hours of a talking. So be can, can be forgiven for forgetting. Uh, where can people check out the multitude of things you do online? Uh, yeah, legionpodcasts.com is where you can find everything uh, from me doing uh, Duncan Bow Come Correct or Duncan Bow Go to Twin Peaksies with Duncan here, uh, which is, as many historians have noted, ridiculous. Um, uh, Shot and Forty Gaming, which is the video game stuff. Hero Hero Go Show, which is uh, recording this week, new episode with um, uh, Richard Glenn Schmidt. We're ro- uh, wrapping up the Tomie series finally and going out with uh, some insanity and uh god it feels like oh horror hangover the uh exclusive show to legionpodcasts.com uh and on that program uh coming up this uh saturday it, there's not going to be any guests it's just going to be a bit of a nod to george romero uh who we Fantastic. recently lost so uh, I'm, I've been assembling some interviews with him and whatnot, so it's just going to be sort of George Romero in his own words. Bitchin', bitchin'. You should go and check out all that content on Legion Podcast. Thank you very much 
to my guest Bo Ransdell who will be joining me in literally like two shows uh, from now uh, to to um, to discuss 1973 and we're going to go back through it all over again the trials, the tribulations, the jubilations and the trauma as only you can experience on this top 10 run of shows but until then I'm going to take a short break and come back and close out the show and I'm going to be right back to do that right after this. You're listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been episode 114, where myself and my very special guest, Mr. Bo Ransdell, talked through our top 10 movie selections from 1971, whittling it down to only two to make it through to that final roundtable list in uh, several weeks time from now. The two movies selected, well who would have thought it? Ken Russell's The Devils makes its way to the very end. Congratulations. And a little Belgian vampire movie called The Daughters of Darkness. I'm, I'm chuffed with those two. I think those two are are potential top 10 runners but there are so many more movies to get through and so much more to discuss. Oh my god, so many movies to get through on this show. And joining me <laughs> next week is another heavy hitter of the podcast world. He is my very good friend, uh, one of the showrunners over at the No Budget Nightmares and one of the, the duo over at the Eric Roberts is the fucking man podcast. Doug Tilly returning to the podcast under the stairs. And the movies that we were discussing Represented 1972, ladies and gentlemen, are Don't Torture a Duckling, Last House on the Left, Deliverance, Frenzy, Asylum, Horror Express, Lisa and the Devil, Dr. Fibes Rises Again, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, and The Blood Splattered Bride, aka Till Death Do Us Part. So, we will see ladies and gentlemen, where the chips fall. But as it stands just now, the first four movies at the end of the first two shows in two years of the 1970s see The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Count Yorga, Vampire, and then we have The Devils and The Daughters of Darkness. So incredible. Cannot wait to get through. There's so many more years, so many great guests, and so many more films to discuss can feel like I need to sit back and take it all in. Now this has been a long episode and generally I would regale you with stories at the end of this show but I'm not going to do that this week. I want to power through so uh, we, we can get onto more content. There's going to be tons of bonus episodes and bits of bobs coming up over the next couple of weeks interspersed amongst this top 10 series. I like to do that every year and I'm not stopping this year so keep your eyes peeled for that. And we are rocketing at like a, a, an incredible speed now to the fourth year anniversary for the podcast Under the Stairs and we'll see what we can get lined up in terms of a, a, a special show and a chance for you guys to send in some voicemails and interact with us down the road. Now, now ladies and gents, this is where I plug the show so strap yourselves in. There is a multitude of ways to check out the podcast Under the Stairs. If you're checking us out through Apple Podcasts then please leave us a rating and a review. Now it's easy enough to leave a rate and it doesn't take you next to any time to do that at all but it's the review that really helps I mean if we get five stars for example the more of them we get the higher up the iTunes ratings we are pushed for people to check out the show but it's your words 
in the reviews that actually make them want to listen to the show. Tell them what is good about Podcasts Under the Stairs and they are more likely to check it out. It's basically the written equivalent of you recommending the show to a friend and we advocate word of mouth on the podcast Under the Stairs. You can check us out at Stitcher Smart Radio on the TuneIn app, on SoundCloud and Google Play. So many platforms now to check out the show. We are a proud member of the Legion Podcast Network, surrounded by a multitude of absolutely fantastic genre and gaming podcasts. Oh, visit our website, tputzcast.com. Visit our Facebook group page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast. Check in and say hi to the bars on the twin prongs of social media sexiness, which is Twitter and Instagram. Both of them can be found at tputzcast. So I will be back with my next guest sooner than you can imagine. Doug Tilly and myself looking at 1972 in one week's time on the podcast under the stairs but wherever you are ladies and gentlemen whatever you're up to and whatever the time zone is please 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 take care of yourselves this is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from under the stairs signing off (laughs) 